DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is May 14th, 2015. It is Thursday evening out here on the Pacific Time Coast. It's about 8.08 and a half out here. So if that's all true where you're at, that means we're live. And the difference between live and uh, Memorex is that you can participate when we're live, meaning you can call in 800-932-1980, 800-932-1980. Or you can go to the chat room, which is located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Look for the chat link. It's the one that spells out chat. And uh, you click on that. And you go on in there, and uh, you're, you're you're rolling. Of course, you know, look, I'm not going to tell you you have to participate in the show, because you don't. You can just go in the chat room and, you know, chat it up with the other folks in there. Or, you know, you can be a, uh, you know, a lurker and just uh, see what everybody else is saying and not talk to them at all. You know, it's okay. Anyway, there is one other way, and that is... Yahoo Instant Messenger, if you have that, AVRN Talk, all one word, AVRN Talk, is the screen name you're looking for, and you can communicate directly with me with that. And if you use Yahoo Email, that is a part of your Yahoo Email. You don't even have to download an Instant Messenger like you used to. Uh, anyway, so they've incorporated that. All right, so let's see. Where did I leave off? Oh, yeah, the last story we talked about before we left was meeting people on the Internet. Actually, this was particularly Craigslist, but, you know, that's pretty. That's the Internet, right? So some guy puts an ad in there about he wants to, uh, he's looking for a woman who wants to be submissive. So... Some woman answers it, 22-year-old woman. Uh, this is up in Michigan, and, uh, you know, uh, I went through the story, and the thing is, uh, things didn't go well, and, uh, you know, she made the mistake of agreeing to meet this guy, because, you know, agreeing to meet people is not a mistake, especially if you're, well, looking to meet people. So, uh, you know, all right, here's a stranger with some odd ideas. Maybe I like those ideas, but they're still odd. So, uh, oh yeah, you want to meet? Sure. Hey, I got an idea. How about a rural, excluded, you know, really out there place? I don't think so. See, that's not such a great idea on a first date. Do you think so? That's like meeting somebody at the bar and saying, hey, what do you say you get in my car and uh, we drive out into the middle of nowhere? And, you know, just see what happens. Yeah, that's smart. Okay, so she did that and said, sure, what could go wrong, right? Well, this is the part that I didn't get to in the earlier show, is the part where she ends up tied up, her mouth taped shut, and a bag over her head in the trunk of this guy's car. Okay, that's the part I I didn't get to. Now... She was 
you know, other than a little upset and traumatized, uh, not, uh, you know, she wasn't really harmed other than, I don't know, getting tied up and bagged and thrown in the trunk. It's kind of harm. But anyway, she wasn't physically injured. Uh, and this guy's been charged with uh, several different things, you know, attempted kidnapping and all kinds of other things, too. So, you know, and, of course, the advice was, hey, you know, if you're going to meet strangers, meet them in a public place. Now, the people who wrote this article, CBS, okay, they said the best place, now, get this, the best place to meet strangers on your very first date is at where? Well, Disneyland? No, 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 no. The police station. <laughs> sure. Hey. Want to go out? Sure. What do you say we, uh, you know, have our first date at the police station? <laughs> what? Yeah, come on. Really? Anyway, so that's the story there, folks. Look, if... I, and I, I'm, I'm constantly surprised because, you know, I, I mean, really, as a child... As a child... And you got to understand, a lot of things that I was, you know, I just thought everybody was getting taught this. I just thought this was normal, and everybody knew this, and everybody was doing the same things I was doing and knew what I knew. And it took me many, many years to realize, well, geez, everybody doesn't know what I know. And that may be a good thing or a bad thing, but, I mean, it's 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 just true. And I don't know everything you know. And, uh, you know, it goes on. But I, I was... Just, I don't know, floating around thinking, hey, you know, if I know it, then everybody knows it because I'm not all that smart. So what's, you know, what's the big deal? Okay, I know this. Hey, my parents taught me this. I'm sure your parents taught you too. Well, apparently, parents do not teach their children this. My parents told me, you know, we always hear this, don't talk to strangers, don't talk to strangers. Well, my parents were never don't talk to strangers, Okay. I talked to lots of strangers. I was a friendly kid, and, and I wasn't afraid, and I wasn't made afraid to speak to strangers. Because just talking to somebody is, is rarely ever going to really hurt you, okay? It's the other stupid things we do other than talking, okay? And my parents taught me that, look, do not allow anyone to get within arm's length of you. In other words, just keep your distance from strangers. You can talk to them. I Look, I don't like people being closer than arm's length that I have to talk to. You know those close talker people? I think... The uh, I think Seinfeld even did a did an episode on close talkers. Oh man, you know the people that want to get right up to your face when they talk to you. Well, I don't I don't like that. You know, I think having your own little personal space, like as far out as your arms go, is a good thing. And you know what? If somebody is out of reach, they can't grab you. And that was the whole theory behind, you know, keep your distance from strangers. Sure, you can talk to them, but keep your distance. And, hey, I got to say, that worked. It, nothing ever happened to me. Worked real well. But, you know, parents would rather, you know, instill fear in their children and say, don't talk to strangers. Like, that's really going to happen? Really? You mean, okay, listen, Junior, don't ever talk to strangers. Okay. So, everybody, Junior, that isn't Junior's mom and dad, basically... <laughs> Sorry, can't talk to you. What are you supposed to tell the teacher at school? Nope, uh-uh. I don't know you. 
you know, all the kids at school, I don't know you either yet, so I can't talk to you, which means I'll never get to know you, which means, uh, well, that's going to be pretty bad, and nobody's going to do it. So it's ridiculous to tell children that. It just makes them afraid, and, and it doesn't. they're not going to listen to you because it's ridiculous advice. Don't talk to strangers. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, just you and me, voices in my head. Then I guess uh, I'll be talking to you because I, I can't talk to any strangers. <laughs> just keep your distance, folks. Use your head. Don't be stupid. There's nothing wrong with meeting people on the Internet anymore, and it's not any more dangerous than walking into a bar room where everybody's drunk. And and this is where you're going to find love? <laughs> Come on. Really? Oh, yeah. The girls, boy, when they walk into a bar, man, they got the pick of every drunk in there. Yeah, buddy. What a good choice. What could go wrong, huh? You know, when people act as though, oh, man, you know, uh, going on the Internet and uh, ever meeting anybody off the Internet, that's just downright dangerous, man. But we've got all these other things we do that we... What? What? So what? I'm going to pound down some alcohol and go talk to a bunch of strangers in a dark room. What? What could go wrong? At least it's not the internet. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so... Speaking of the internet... There's a story that the USA is going to... Give up control of the Internet to a global something or another. Well, this is not going to be good, folks, because, you know, you're going to have countries like China, North Korea. You know, if this is going to be a U.N. thing, uh, it's going to go bad. They are going to kill it because the U.N. make no mistake about this. You know, look, the League of Nations was a, a decent idea. And the idea was basically a round table for the nations of the world to come and sit down and try to talk things over before they had to go to war with each other. Not to create some worldwide government where uh, some group of elitists are in charge in some office somewhere telling everybody everywhere what to do. It's a good idea to sit down and try to talk over your problems before you start killing everybody. That, that's an idea I can get on board with. But the United Nations is not the League of Nations. The United Nations has always had in its goal to be the world government. And not just any old world government. It is a creation of the communist worldwide revolution. Right? No joke. Doesn't matter what you think about communism or, or well, you know, we should call it this or call it that, or maybe it isn't really communism, maybe it's something this or that or whatever. Doesn't matter. That's what they named it. They being the people who created it, and they get to name it. They called it the Worldwide Communist Revolution. Now, there was a split, okay, between Lenin and Trotsky. Okay, they had different ways that they thought to go about this Worldwide Communist Revolution. One of them thought, well, we need to just, you know, we need to go to war and... uh Basically, 
you know, kill these people into submission. Now, we'll just beat everybody into submission. We'll roll across the earth, conquering countries, and we'll just make them be communists. That's what we'll do. That's a good idea, and I believe that was Trotsky's side to think that. And the other side was more like, no, wait a minute. That'll never work. We'll just be in constant war, and we'll never get our way, because after a while, people oppose you. And then, you know, it, it always this never works, right? So they're like, no, what we got to do is infiltrate them. We have to subvert their way of life. We have to subvert their belief systems. Okay? Now, I'm not just making this up, and I'm not just looking at, oh, well, look what they've done, so this must be the plan. No, I'm a, I have actually read this stuff from the 1920s you know, that they were writing. <laughs> guys, okay, but guys like Beria wrote a whole instruction manual about psychopolitics. Now, psychopolitics is, is really kind of simple. It's, uh, you know, the Hegelian dialectic, and it's basically manipulating everybody into believing a certain way and disbelieving other traditions that they've always believed. You know, then we've got the uh, Ten Planks of the Communist Manifesto. You know, they laid it out what they were going to do and how they were going to do it. And it wasn't, well, what we're going to do is get a bunch of tanks and roll on into town and kill everybody until you all agree you're communists. But they had two factions, and one faction wanted to do that. And uh, Trotsky had to go, so he died. But then, you know, we had Lenin and who came after him, Stalin. Stalin kind of leaned towards the kill everybody until they admit they're communists sort of thing. But, we see what's happened after that, right? We thought, oh, we were told. Because you see, while Stalin built a wall around the Soviet Union, and it wasn't, yeah, sure, you know, I mean, they didn't let people leave real easily. People did defect and all that. But, it was mainly to keep the Western bankers out. Because the industrialists after the war had big plans to just rape Russia's natural resources, okay? And also, you know, take over the country. And Stalin knew the only way to stop that was to keep them out. Hence the Iron Curtain. But while they were doing that, what was happening in the United States was Soviets, and they didn't have to be Russian. I mean, look at all these dim-witted little white boys joining ISIS wanting to be uh, in jihad or something. Or, or black Americans. What are you, stupid? Just same with communists. They didn't have to come from the Soviet Union to be Soviets. And where did they go? They went to the universities is where they went first. And what did they start doing? Infesting the young generation with their crackpot commie ideas. Those children grow up. They retain these ideas and they teach them to others. 
Then they end up, oh, I'm going to get it. I'm going to be a professor myself. I'm going to be a teacher myself. We have the whole public school system infested with communists. And they're not just run-of-the-mill, I want to be a communist. No, these are, not only do I want to be a communist, I am going to teach you that you are a communist. And that's what they're doing. And once you get the education system, which they they did long ago, look what's happened. I mean, if you bring a Bible onto a public school, uh, you'll be arrested. How's that freedom of religion? And how is it if I bring my Bible onto a public school building, how is that the government promoting Christianity? Now, I might be promoting Christianity, but how is the government promoting Christianity? They're not. They're just not interfering with my right to promote Christianity. And you know what? If I'm sitting there promoting Christianity and you don't like it, you've got the right to walk away. But no, that's not it. Now, we'll call the police. You'll be arrested. You'll be dragged out of here by a SWAT team and beaten to a pulp. And they say, well, you know, this is, uh, this is constitutional. Oh, yeah, because, you know, uh, separation of, uh, yeah, 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 separation of church and state. Well, you know what? That's not in the Constitution, folks. That whole separation of church and state was in a private correspondence between Jefferson and somebody else. And they were discussing, you know, and he said something about a wall between it. But they take that even out of context. Because Jefferson wasn't encouraging to to prevent anyone from you know, uh, practicing their religion. Now, I want you to listen to what it actually says, because the bottom line is, they're leaving a whole lot out. They always do. It's like, well, blah, we're going to do this, and this is how we're going to do it, and we're going to forget the whole rest of the law. Congress, okay, for one, Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say school districts, because Congress, for one, is not in charge of school districts. Congress isn't in charge of anything except Congress. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Well, I don't know. Uh, You know, there is that evolution thing. That's a religion. You know. They they've they've made a lot of laws that you could say I don't know this is somewhat uh, religious because you know what you don't have any facts to back it up and the only reason you would ever believe this is because you have faith well that's a religion shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion oh well there you go. Well, they've taken no law to mean uh, we can't allow a Bible to be seen on public property. 
anywhere not to give the impression that the government is respecting an establishment of religion. But there's a comma after that, and it goes on and says, or, meaning Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Oh, wait a minute. So you can't make a law that says you got to bring a Bible to school, but you can't write a law that says I can't bring a Bible to school. Get it? Where's the other half of the balance here? See, we've lost our balance. We are an unbalanced society. This is one of our problems, one of our problems, okay, that we are unbalanced. We're, we're unstable in all our ways. We, we take laws and say, well, hey, no establishment of a religion, and leave out everything else. It's not like the First Amendment is so lengthy we had to cut it down. Gosh, it's actually only one big sentence. <laughs> one big sentence, because there's one period. There's lots of commas and semicolons, but, you know, no periods, man. It's just one period. It's one sentence. Now ah, we got to cut that down. It's a long sentence. we got to get rid of half of it. Maybe three-quarters of it, even. Yeah, like the people. That's the UN's other plan, is to get rid of three-quarters of the people. Anyway, let's see. We got more. It goes on and on. I mean, you know. Now, here is something that... Uh, somebody posted this in the uh, a link in the chat room, and I, I went and looked. And it's... Uh, it's tying the Nuremberg Code to the H1N1 vaccines. And uh, basically, um, that code said that you can't experiment on people without their consent, basically. Because, you know, the Nazis were well known that they were taking prisoners and taking, you know, whoever and just doing some real weird you know, experiments on them against their will. And, and the Nuremberg Tribunal was like, you can't do that. Now, uh, let's see. They've had to accomplish a complete end run around the very code meant to stop any repeat of their deadly forced medical experiments and civil rights around consent have been carefully removed by laws put in place in advance by governments such as Bush and Cheney and Obama and the WHO, which these pharmaceutical companies control. I.G. Farben was indicted for war crimes by the Nuremberg Tribunal for making the gas for the gas chambers for hideous experiments by Mangala for buying, experimenting, and on and killing people with vaccines. I.G. Farben was broke up into BASF, Bayer, 
now Baxter International, which released deadly avian flu mixed with human flu last year, which would have killed millions, and then was immediately selected to produce the swine flu vaccines. And Hochest, formerly Adventist, now Sanofi Pasteur, also making the swine flu vaccines, and a company that put Sarkozy into office in France, where he had secret plans to remove democracy there by uh, using the pandemic as a pretext. The Rockefellers, along with the pharmaceutical industry who control the WHO, that's the World Health Organization, they had a large interest in IG Farben and were involved in eugenics and genocide, which I went through last week. They funded all that. Who, this is who, is promoting the vaccines. The new means to forced medical experiments seem to be through fear and emergency rather than concentration camps. See, okay, and this ties into what I was saying before. See, folks, it all ties in. None of this stuff is happening in a vacuum all by itself. They got a big plan, and they're tying it all together. See, because dragging people off the concentration camps and locking them up and this sort of thing is akin to, okay, we're going to start a war and we're going to kill everybody until they all admit they're communists. All right? Yeah, that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is to brainwash everybody into accepting the vaccines, accepting the medical experimentation. What do you think your doctor is doing as they're hacking you up at the, on the operating table? Do you really think they know what they're doing? Sure, the guy might be able to wield a knife pretty well and cut a straight line, but do you really think they know what they're doing? I don't. Hey, take this. Hey, let's see what happens. You know, and they're pretty honest right up front. Well, what do you think you're doing, doctor? Well, I'm practicing medicine. Oh, practicing, are you? Means you ain't got this down right yet, huh? Boy, I'll tell you, man. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to take a break. We'll play uh, Stump the Room. And then we'll be back in a few. Everybody stay right where you're at. We're going to do a song, keep the place shaking. There's a song called Rambling on My Mind.
have denied internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. 
Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still the 14th of May, 2015. It's Thursday. And uh, it's about 8.47 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. 
If that's true where you're at, we're live. You can participate in the show, 800-932-1980. Go to the website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Look for the link that says chat. Hit it. You'll be in there. Okay, let's see. Now, somebody in the chat room asked me about that story about the uh, the very intelligent girl who met the guy on Craigslist and agreed to meet him in an, you know, secluded rural area and ended up in the trunk with a bag on her head and tied up. And they asked me, uh, well, how they catch the guy, you know, what happened? I And I, I didn't get to that, so... I didn't. I forgot to even mention that. But the thing is, uh, the chick was uh, not, you know, just gonna oh boo hoo. I'm a, you know, I'm a victim. She was kicking and screaming and making a tussle and kicking the back seat out from, you know, the trunk. So this guy's driving down the road and she's doing that and he's getting like turning around. I guess telling her to shut up or seeing what she's doing at least. And while he's turning around, you know how it goes. Got your hands on the wheel, you, you you know, you twist your body, and, you know, the car swerves. Well, cops saw the car swerve, and they pulled him over for a uh, suspected DUI. That's how they ended up, you know, uh, can I see your license, registration, proof of insurance, and would you mind telling me what's with the screaming chick in the trunk, you know, uh, thing? Yeah, so that's what happened there. Anyway, so, um, you know, here's something. Now, the Nuremberg Code. Let's just get back to that, all right? Uh, Rockefellers, pharmaceutical industry, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Large interest in IG Farben. Remember, they were convicted. And, um, yes, the new way is emergency rather than fear rather than concentration camps. And that means the eugenics now appears to be disguising the genocidal intent and the contents of vaccines. The Nuremberg Code is based on two things missing now. Informed consent. Instead, we have military on the ground to assist and martial law statutes on the books in most states arranged by Bush and Cheney that would make medical experimentation, diagnostic tests, unknown treatments, taking of samples, and exposure to chemical decontamination and vaccination mandatory via the threat of prison, massive fines, and detention camps. And what do you think they're going to do if they get you in prison or detention camp? They're going to stick you anyway. So you better, you know what, folks, if you're going to stick stick it out and say, you know what, I'm not having this, you better get ready for a fight. And I'm talking a fight to the death fight, blood on the ground fight. Man, you better get ready. You better get real, and you better realize Yeah, you don't want vaccines? You think vaccines cause autism? You think vaccines poison you? Well, I believe that too. And if you believe that, then you better get real about saying no. And if I have to say no with a bang, I'll say no with a bang. You know, what happened to no means no? Oh, except when you're telling them no, right? H1N1 has brought us full circle back to forced 
human medical experiments and with the very Nazi companies and Rockefellers involved then. Nothing's changed. One wonders then, what is in those unknown, untested vaccines being forced on millions? In August 1947, the judges delivered their verdict in the doctor's trials against Carl Brandt and several others. This is the Nuremberg trials. They also delivered their opinion on medical experimentation on human beings. Several of the accused had argued that their experiments differed little from pre-war ones that were there uh, and that there was no law that differentiated between legal and illegal experiments. In April of the same, you see, the nice thing about the Nuremberg trials, other than, you know, they let most of the real bad guys go because the United States wanted to use their skills. So they gave them new identities and a big fat paycheck and houses and everything. Yeah. But other than that, because the Nuremberg trials was nothing but a show trial. And it wasn't even really for the American public. The Nuremberg trials was really for the armies. The millions of men in the American army. They saw some terrible things. And if there wasn't going to be any retribution here, if there wasn't going to be any justice, then there was going to be trouble. And you don't want trouble, you know, from five, six million guys with guns, okay? So you throw them a bone, you give them a show, and that's what the Nuremberg trials really were. And, of course, there had to be some real losers, and, you know, some of these guys got hanged, but... Not enough of them, and not the real bad guys. The real bad guys went to work for the United States government. In April of the same year, Dr. Leo Alexander had submitted to the Council for War Crimes six points of six points defining legitimate medical research. The trial verdict opted these points and added an extra four. The ten points con- constituted the Nuremberg Code. Although the legal force of the document was not established and it was not incorporated directly into either the American or German law, the Nuremberg Code, you see, folks, this was all just blah, 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 blah. And everybody thinks that, yeah, well, they said it, so it's got to be law. No, it's not law. It just was a nice idea, and it only applied to those guys there. Thing is, it's the same kind of scam they did with the whole... Oh, yeah, you ask a lot of people out there, and you say, hey, is it legal for Hollyweird movie studios to put some subliminal messages in their movies? Most people would tell you, no, no, it's not legal. Some people that think they know stuff would actually say, no, 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 you know, they, you know, Congress said they can't do that way back in the 50s. Yeah, that's what they said. But they never made a law saying it. They had hearings. They condemned the practice. But they never bothered to write a law saying it's illegal. If we catch you doing it, you're going to jail. They never did that. They just said, oh, it's an outrage. It's terrible. It's bad practice. Bad. Bad. You're bad. But they never made it law. Same with the uh, Nuremberg Code. Anyway, uh, let's see. 
The Nuremberg Code and the related Declaration of Helsinki are the basis for the Code of Federal Regulations, Title 45, Volume 46, which are the regulations issued by the United States Department of Health and Human Services governing federally funded research in the United States. In addition, the Nuremberg Code has also been incorporated in the law of individual states such as California and other countries. The Nuremberg Code includes such principles as informed consent and absence of coercion, properly formulated scientific experimentation, and benefit toward experimented participants. Meaning, we can't just inject you with syphilis to see how bad you suffer. We at least have to say, well, we're going to inject you with this to see if we can make you better. Let's see. The 10 points. And this is from uh, the United States National Institutes of Health. The voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. This means that the person involved should have legal capacity to give consent, should be so situated to be able to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any element of force, fraud, deceit, duress, overreaching, or other ulterior form of constraint or coercion, and should have sufficient knowledge and comprehension of the elements of the subject matter involved as to enable him or her to make an understanding and enlightened decision. This latter element requires that before the acceptance of an affirmative decision by the experimental subject, there should be made known to him the nature, duration, and purpose of the experiment the method and means by which it is used to be conducted, all inconveniences and hazards responsible to be expected, and the effects upon his health or person which may possibly come from his participation in, this, in the experiment. Well, just like they've changed the word bribery to lobbying, we're not bribing anybody, we're lobbying them. Yeah. Two, the experiment should be such as to yield fruitful results for the good of society, unprocurable by other methods or means of study, and not random and unnecessary in nature. Wow. Three, the experiment should be so designed and based on the results of animal experimentation and a knowledge of the natural history of the disease or other problem under study that the anticipated results will justify the performance of the experiment. Remember, folks, they're practicing medicine. What is another word for practice? Experiment. The experiment should be so conducted as to avoid all unnecessary physical and mental suffering and injury. Number five, no experiment should be conducted where there is prior reason to believe that death or disabling injury will occur. Huh except perhaps in those experiments where the experimental physicians also serve as subjects. You want to you wanna screw around, doctor? Then experiment on yourself. Six, the degree of risks to be taken should never exceed that determined by the humanitarian importance of the problem to be solved by the experiment. Seven, proper preparation should be made and Adequate facilities provided to protect the experimental subject against even remote possibilities of injury, disability, or death. Eight, 
The experiment should be conducted only by scientifically qualified persons. Yeah, not the clerk at the freaking grocery store. The highest degree of skill and care should be required at all stages of the experiment of those who conduct or engage the experiment. Nine, during the course of the experiment, the human subject should be at liberty to bring the experiment to an end if he has reached the physical or mental state where continuation of the experiment seems to him to be impossible. Ten, during the course of the experiment, the scientist in charge must be prepared to terminate the experiment at any stage if he has a probable cause to believe in the exercise of the good faith, superior skill, and careful judgment required of him that a continuation of the experiment is likely to result in injury, disability, or death to the experimental subject. Gee, folks, seems to me... Uh, any idea of a mandatory vaccination violates this. But then again, doesn't fluoridating the water violate this also? I think it does. Doesn't putting out GMO organisms and calling it food when they don't know the long-term effects of it? Isn't that an experiment? Doesn't that violate these codes? I think it does. Anyway, I'll see you tomorrow at uh, 2 p.m. Wow, another week already. Man, it's unbelievable. Time's flying. But, hey, I guess when you're having fun. As always, thanks for listening. Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Depleted you 
uranium does not exist in nature. It's a byproduct of the atomic bomb. To manufacture such weapons, uranium mined from the Earth is divided into two parts. One part, containing the isotope U-235, is separated and undergoes an enrichment process which ultimately yields the high explosive. What remains, more than 99% of the original mass, is mostly U-238, a waste product which is much less radioactive. This is called depleted uranium. Military research soon came to understand the advantages of this new artificial metal. One of the heaviest on Earth, it was cheap, plentiful, and easy to mold into shells dense enough to penetrate the heaviest armor. As it is much less radioactive than natural uranium, military planners believed they could adapt it with little danger to the health of their troops. The Gulf War provided the first mass testing ground for this new weapon system. On land, tanks fired depleted uranium shells as did A-10 warthogs from the sky and Navy phalanx batteries from the sea. According to the Pentagon, 940,000 projectiles, more than 300 tons of depleted uranium, were discharged during the Gulf War. When one of these uranium bullets is fired, thousands and thousands of grams of fine radioactive dust are spewed into the air. This is much different than a natural uranium exposure. This is much different than a uranium worker's exposure because it's fine dust right there in the air and the soldier isn't aware that it's uranium dust. And this is more easily breathed in. And because it's very small particles, it settles in the lungs. This is much, much different than a natural background uranium exposure. As it speeds through the air, one of DU's most distinctive properties is its capacity to flare off and thus vaporize tiny uranium particles. In this night footage, you can see in red this deadly stream as one tank fires on and destroys another. The consequences of this aerosol-like effect are described by Captain Doug Rookie, who for five years was in charge of cleaning up the residue from DU's use in the Gulf War. This is the DU team in Saudi Arabia. This was as we were lifting an M1 tank onto a truck for shipment back to the United States. Uh, I'm in the center of this stuff, wearing the hat. The members of this team are dead or sick. The information that came from the United States government and everything is, even though we're questioning it, saying it's not a hazard. There's not going to be any resuspension. The oxides are not they're going to be so heavy that you won't be able to breathe it into your lungs. So the information that the team, this is the team that cleaned up the mess in Saudi Arabia was given has now resulted in team members' deaths and sickness and family destruction. This is the inside of that 120 millimeter impact. The milky white or the cloudy things that you see in this slide is solid uranium dust. This is uranium oxide. This vehicle was clean and all of this oxide was laying on the floor when we entered it. It's almost as if putting your foot or slapping your hand into talcum powder. It resuspended. And this shows the resuspension uranium dust, 
which goes to prove that it is such a hazard for inhalation or ingestion. It's there, and unless it's physically removed, it can be resuspended and inhaled for eternity, 4.5 billion years. That's what makes it so hazardous and so dangerous to civilians, non-combatants, and other individuals. This is proper clothing that should be worn by any individual that's working on or within or within 25 meters of any vehicle, structure, or material impacted by uranium munitions. This particular individual that's shown in this photograph was not warned that he required respiratory skin protection to climb or crawl on destroyed Iraqi equipment that had been destroyed by depleted uranium munitions. Um, it just proves and shows that the warnings did not occur. Bernie is today sick also, the individual on top of this tank. Respiratory, kidney problems, rashes, neurological, the same as everybody else. Again, a civilian who has been denied medical care by the United States government. This fine gentleman is deceased. Cancer. Disregarded by both the Pentagon and the Veterans Administration, the growing frustration of Gulf War veterans was ultimately voiced in a series of hearings before the U.S. Congress, who over the past several years have accepted through three years of these hearings. And I'm not too sure we're getting much more information now than we did in the last two years. Memo further states, and I quote again, that all documents which seem to confirm the use or detection of nuclear, chemical, or biological agents should be tagged, and the documents which could embarrass the government or DOD would be also be included in the tagged category. That seems to me to be a clear filtering or manipulation of the information. Um, the person who signed the document is no longer um, with this uh, process. There are 2,300 pages of those logs which are still unavailable to us. We make and every, we think that's the Defense Department decision. Do you do you disagree? We will make every page available to the committee at the committee's con uh, convenience. But you have not. In 1993, the U.S. Congress passed a law ordering the military to research inhaled depleted uranium exposures. And one lowly colonel in the United States military, a Colonel Eric Daxon, and his boss, Army Undersecretary Bernard Roster, broke the law. They failed to conduct the research on inhaled radioactive toxic waste. And here's where Gulf War veterans are. Nine years since the start of the Gulf War, there's no research on this radioactive inhalation poisoning. This is Colonel Eric Daxon, the Army's chief medical analyst for depleted uranium and a frequent target of veterans' organizations who accuse him of hiding the truth about DU. Fifty years of state-supported research allow him to claim that soldiers' exposure to inhaled DU was not serious enough to make them sick. Concentrations at these great distances are so low that it's very, very difficult to distinguish the depleted uranium from the natural uranium. For the military, inhalation of DU particles poses no risk at all. And yet, in these 1995 videos produced by Captain Roque at Pentagon Demand, the dangers of internal contamination from inhalation were, if anything, emphasized. 
contaminated uranium dust or smoke may be inhaled if respiratory protection is not worn. It may also be picked up and ingested if gloves are not worn and the dust is not washed off before eating, drinking, or using the latrine. Depending on how much depleted uranium is inhaled, swallowed, or gets under the skin, heavy metal poisoning may occur, which can cause damage to internal organs and tissues. The second concern, radioactivity. Health effects of ionizing radiation depend on whether it is alpha, beta, or gamma, and if the radioactive material is inside or outside the body. No, the video's never really been used. Uh, that's disturbing. Probably some have seen it, but not all. It's definitely not put out to the, the extent that it should be. And I think that's obvious because we still have uranium-contaminated equipment scattered all over Iraq and Kuwait. And now we have it in Kosovo and every place else. Everybody knew that I was sick and having kidney problems and respiratory problems while I'm the director of the project trying to figure out how to clean up the mess. In September of 1996, while I was at the Pentagon briefing everybody on the proper procedures to implement the depleted uranium training program, to show the videos that I had the responsibility to write, direct, edit, produce, and send out. September 1996, they came up to me and said, hey, Doug, you're hot for DU, verbally. Okay, would somebody help me? Never happened. Astonishing. That's what they did to the depleted uranium team, health physicist, and project director. Pentagon resistance to investigating DU has frustrated not only veterans, but also medical researchers. Dr. Asaf Durakovic, Army Colonel, Professor of Nuclear Medicine, and for years one of the U.S. military's chief experts on radiation poisoning, first discovered the presence of depleted uranium while examining Gulf War veterans in 1991. I received very soon after seeing those patients letters, telephone calls, and personal interviews asking me to stop that investigation. When I confronted the authorities with a statement that I was delegated by the government of the United States of America to take care of the sick veterans, they told me that my research will not be supported and in my best interest and in the interest of my career, I should immediately discontinue that work. Fired include physicians that are providing direct medical care for Gulf War casualties, specifically DU casualties, and the whole mixture. Scientists that have the responsibility for cleaning up the Gulf War mess. Scientists and engineers that have the responsibility for telling and developing the Army's programs that deal with it. Very simply, they made you your expert when you spoke up after you found out the hazards that fired you. Colonel Durakovich also ran into problems because his test results couldn't be squared with the Pentagon's line on DU. You know who is Bernard Rosker? He is spokesman for Pentagon. He is doctor of economy. He doesn't know physics, doesn't know medicine, doesn't know biology. I was Pentagon inside men for 12 years. If facts are facts, and I can't manufacture uh, negative evidence to to please uh, to please people. They have put up, challenged us 
to do the science. We accepted that challenge. We do do the science. The science is available. It's peer-reviewed. You have scientists on your staff. Give them the material. Take the story where the science is, not where the emotion is. Yet reading Colonel Daxon's departmental research gives a very different impression. Studies on animals prove that depleted uranium is in fact deposited in bone marrow, brain tissue, kidneys, and testicles, resulting in higher rates of both cancer and genetic mutation. We know in science that depleted uranium and other uranium isotopes, there are 16 isotopes of uranium, do have the capacity of causing somatic and genetic changes in the human and animal organism. Somatic changes have been demonstrated at the level of the cell, level of macromolecules, DNA and RNA, level of the tissue, level of the organ, level of the entire animal. Professor Durakovich pursued these experiments at his own expense, and nine years after the Gulf War, he found excess levels of several DU isotopes in his patients, especially U-236, which generally occurs as a waste product of the nuclear fission process. Here, he presents his results for the first time. It proves that these men were in fact contaminated by DU. We have evidence that all four of the isotopes of uranium are present in excess in the body fluids and in the body organs of the patients who are being referred to our program. Their bodies could not eliminate uranium-236, which is unquestionably different from any natural form of uranium. These results immediately call into question 40 years of military-industrial research minimizing the effects of depleted uranium. And I'm only curious what will be the lie after this. What lies can they invent after now? In late 1998, the Iraqi government, hoping to sway world opinion, sponsored a conference claiming that the real cause of Gulf War Syndrome, which also afflicts the local population, was neither vaccines, chemical gases, nor neurotoxins, but exclusively the British and American deployment of depleted uranium weapons. I have been affected. When radiation hit, for example, depleted uranium, and chose not to repeat them. CNN, for example, which attended the event, issued no report. And the effect on the Western scientific community was nil. From America's veteran community, only Carol Piku attended. My goal was to seek the information of what was happening to the Iraqi children, the people, the soldiers, and to bring it back to the United States. They didn't take the pyridocygmine, they didn't have the anthrax vaccines, and they didn't have the botulinum that I know of. But they were exposed to deplete uranium. This is a colonel that was a tanker in the war. He lost his thyroid, I lost my thyroid. He has muscle problems, I have muscle problems. He has neurological damage, 
I have neurological damage. He's the first one that I met that was looked just like me. And um, here we are together, the colonel, and he has um, cancer. His brother was diagnosed with the cancer. He also, all of them have a form of leukemia and cancer. They were like us. They were no different than my, my comrades and myself. And they were all sick and dying. It's just a matter of when. Our bodies are slowly dying. It's just a matter of when our time is up. Masses on my arms where I can't rotate my hands anymore. I have to catheterize myself. At first, it was uncomfortable, but after a day, the Iraqi generals, four Iraqi generals, took me back into the battle zone of where I went originally. And the same tanks that were there in 1991 were still there in 1997. I climbed on those tanks again, and I had a Geiger counter, and we took the alpha rays and the gamma rays, and we did reading to show that these areas were still highly contaminated with the city uranium. I climbed on those tanks again, and I had a Geiger counter, and we took the alpha rays and the gamma rays, and we did reading to show that these areas were still highly contaminated with depleted uranium. We have no means to decontaminate the Iraqi environment. Earth, water, even the air have been contaminated by radioactive materials. Nearly 1.2 million civilians have died since the war, victims of Britain and America's nine-year embargo. Especially vulnerable have been infants and children under five, whose immune systems have withered with a lack of food and medicine. Given the extent of the devastation, epidemiologists will now have a hard time tracing the effects of depleted uranium separately from the many other causes of death and disease. A number of children are born with deformations. With the help of a few doctors, we've started to investigate. 
And we've discovered that depleted uranium is responsible for these deformities and cancer. care here in the United States for ourselves and yet we're the leading nation in modern technology we use a sophisticated weapon system we create it now a sophisticated illness but we have no sophisticated means to take care of this days after the 1998 conference on depleted uranium, the Allies once again began bombing Baghdad. The Vatican Father Benjamin was there. In December 98, I was in Baghdad, where we filmed the bombing from the Al-Rashid Hotel. The impact threw us against the wall, but I managed to save the camera. The next day we visited the bomb sites along with a number of foreigners who hadn't had time to leave, including two Germans. The two Germans on December 20th collected a missile fragment which they then had analyzed in Germany. And this fragment was found to be radioactive. So, not only had DU been deployed during the Gulf War, but nine years later, the Allies were still using it in the bombing of civilian areas. In fact, throughout the shelling of the Balkans, Iraq was being bombarded two or three times a week. There have been more than 300 deaths as a result, but the world media has had very little to say about it. suspicious of, uh, of the Iraqi uh, claims. We do know that in the 1994 time frame, Iraq instructed their embassies to go on an information campaign attacking depleted uranium and downplaying the possibilities of any adverse effect from the use of, of chemicals. Well, if we want to help the people in Iraq, they're reporting uh, increased incidences of diseases and birth defects. If we really want to help those people, uh, 
The best thing that we can do is focus on what the science tells us may be the causes. The science says it is very unlikely that the pleuranium is causing this. It is very, very unlikely. These are these are natural diseases that unfortunately occur throughout the population. And just the again, I'll get back to the just the common sense thing. We've got places where the natural uranium is very, very high and where it's very, very low. And we just don't see these sorts of things. And yet these congenital deformities are also found in the offspring of American veterans. In 1994, Life magazine made it their cover story. But strangely enough, no serious study ever followed analyzing how widespread these deformities actually were. Professor Sigvard Horst-Gunther, a German epidemiologist and an old colleague of Dr. Albert Schweitzer, tried to make some sense out of these deformities. for veteran families are giving birth to children with no eyes, no arms, no feet. They have uh, trouble with the, uh, with the blood and also respiratory problems. Well, if you compare this, you see this Iraqi child has no only hands, crippled legs. And this is a child from the United States. They have only the hands, like this one, and no legs at all. Similar to this. Similar situation. These children are very intelligent, but uh, you see, and it costs a lot of money for the parents, you see, uh, to give some education to these children. American law prohibits soldiers from suing the government for harm suffered during military service. After the Gulf War, this law was extended to include the harm suffered by family members. Is this why soldiers on active duty won't talk to the media? If they speak out, who's going to provide medical care for their children anymore? Most soldiers that have children that are deformed like this have to stay in the military so that they can get medical care for their children. If they continue to speak out against the one that feeds them, they won't, they won't get any benefits. It's very hard. As soon as you start to make noise and you complain, you lose your benefits. So, a man that has a child that is deformed, if he gets out of the army, what kind of job is he going to get that's going to take care of his child medically? child has a pre-existing disease. No one's going to insure that child.
sale of BU munitions is not limited to American companies. It's now a staple of the global arms business. Of Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid shopping. He's come to inaugurate the Dubai Air Show with the son of Syrian President Hafez Assad. All the major arms players are here. Many of the munition systems for sale in this room use, among other materials, depleted uranium. But when we asked more specific questions, most of the dealers chose not to talk about it. No, I don't know about that. I'm not qualified to talk about that. It's not nuclear, or I would know. Kosovo and the Gulf War are good publicity for the combat-tested readiness of these new arms systems. Since the Gulf War, depleted uranium has been used for surgical strikes in Bosnia in 1995 and in Serbia and Kosovo in 1999. delivery platform for depleted uranium ordnance used throughout the war in Kosovo, the U.S. Army's A-10 tank buster. Kilograms of depleted uranium have been fired in Yugoslavia so far. Confusion reigns here in the midst of contamination, and Red Cross personnel don't know what to tell the people who rely on them. There you can see there's a tank on the left, probably blown up during the fighting. But we don't know by what kind of weapon it was destroyed. In which case, it's certainly better to keep away from the grass here because the uranium shells that they use can a certain amount of radiation. That's why we keep the windows closed, too, because it's better to avoid breathing the air and dust, as it may also be radioactive. I've heard them say that 13 tanks were destroyed, but we don't know for sure. If we really can find out, it would be good to let the local people know, because they know that these kinds of weapons have been used and they're very nervous about it. The UN has appointed a commission of inquiry to look into local ecological damage. But it's been frustrated by the refusal of both NATO and the Pentagon to reveal where DU munitions were used, consistent with their policy of downplaying any potential danger. Okay, thanks for that. Well, let me, let me uh, say first that, um, yes, we, we have not used uh, depleted uranium in the last, in the last uh, few weeks because, um, you know, then with the depleted uranium uh, issue, uh, we started, of course, with the way that we asked uh, information from the NATO sources of the location of these uh, places, and we found out that... Uh, 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 that is some information that NATO cannot give us. It's, it's depending on the member states. And of course, then we turned, uh, for example, to the U.S. State Department. And there again, we found out that this is classified information and, and we cannot get access during our work to this type of information. Ladies and gentlemen, could 
afternoon. Welcome to the, the daily briefing. Since NATO appears to be using depleted uranium munitions in Serbia, are there any plans once the war is over to have any kind of clean-up given the reputation which these munitions have got in Iraq? Okay, thanks for that. Well, let me, let me uh, say first that, um, yes, we, we have not used uh, depleted uranium in the last, in the last uh, few weeks because, um, you know, it's, um, those uranium um, munition is only used against uh, targets which are valid targets uh, where they could, can do a special effect on it. And um, that's why only in rare cases they will be used at all. Uh, this ammunition is not uh, obviously what everybody thinks it is. It's not uranium, kind of uh, like a radiation weapon or so. And it's, uh, you find it everywhere in, in the terrain. You find it, in, I already mentioned it, in soil, rocks, and so on. Okay, there have also, by the way, been extensive studies into this. One very thorough one by the RAND Corporation in California, which showed that it does not have environmental aspects or health hazards. Question there? On what basis do the Pentagon and NATO assert that depleted uranium is not dangerous? Here is the RAND report, a compilation of all the positive and none of the negative reports on the effect of DU. Clearly, other scientists have drawn their conclusions from a wider well of sources. The report's chief author, Dr. Naomi Harley, is a physicist. Her views are typical of a government-sponsored orthodoxy which has traditionally minimized the dangers of low-level radiation. The report focuses on chemistry and lab analysis rather than on the biology of the used medical realities. Her conclusions are striking considering she wasn't in the Gulf and didn't interview any veterans. You would have to choke to death before you could get enough uranium in you to be serious. <laughs> It's called a spent round. That is a weapon that has been fired and there's a residue of a shell. This shell itself would not have any residual radioactivity that's significant. But what could be significant is if part of the penetrator, the uranium itself, fragmented and you had a visible chunk of material. Now, these have not been found. I know the military has been looking for these. Yet shells like these, used massively by A-10s, can be found by the thousands in Iraq. the bullets I found. These are like a cigar. Both are radioactive. Professor Gunther found such shells in Iraq, and his story is an extraordinary one. Well, in March and May 91, I found unusual bullets on the battlefield and also shells. So it was unusual. I was an officer in the German Army, so I became suspicious, but I had nothing in mind. In March 92, I saw in Basra children playing with these bullets, and one uh, children I heard died of leukemia playing with these bullets. 
these children are playing with bullets. You are getting some ulcerations here on the head. Uh, no pain, no pain, and be it becomes bigger and bigger. The uh, free university, and everybody was shocked. They said, well, this bullet is highly toxic and radioactive. Where did you find it? And when I came the next Monday, I saw in front of me a large uh, um, number of policemen. They had in, in, in mind to arrest me because setting free radioactivity and the toxic bullet. Microsivator here. Uh, um, 300 divided by 11, you have the year dose within one day. And the children were playing with 12 bullets. 11 microsieverts per hour is an extraordinarily radioactive reading for conventional DU. So we asked a respected nuclear physicist from the Collège de France to comment on the results. It seems to me that this cannot be depleted uranium. Conventional depleted uranium cannot be this radioactive. It must have come from an atomic reactor. This uranium is really nuclear waste. We also showed Dr. Sine the recent results of Dr. Durakovich's research, which found a consistent pattern of excess DU in veterans from a variety of military services. More ominously, Durakovich found traces not only of the isotopes U-234, 5, and 8, but also of U-236, which does not exist in nature. In this ratio, these four isotopes are found only in reprocessed uranium because it's only inside a reactor under neutron bombardment that these substances come to be. In nature, they only exist as trace elements. The U.S. admits to having fired 300 tons of depleted uranium during the Gulf War. How much of it was nuclear waste that had passed through atomic reactors? Was the Gulf War, in fact, a low-level radioactive conflict? In recent months, the American Department of Energy has admitted to the long-term contamination of its uranium stocks by plutonium and other highly radioactive materials. So the question is, did these poisons also find their way into depleted uranium and from there into the bodies of soldiers and civilians around the world? Phase two, recovery. With each use of depleted uranium, decontamination must follow. Today, two companies are being very well paid to secretly clean up Kuwait. But what can be done for Iraq, for Bosnia, for Serbia, Kosovo, and the many other countries hosting the proliferation of this new and terrible weapon? This is what had happened for 24 vehicles in the United States, took it in U.S. vehicles. It took us three months to prepare them and took three years to clean them up. 24 vehicles. Now in Kosovo and Iraq and all over Kuwait, thousands and thousands of vehicles have been destroyed. They need to have the same treatment. What do we do? Dig a big hole and push them in? Something needs to be done because unless they're removed, the contamination is removed. Men, women, and children will be affected for 4.5 billion liters if they can inhale or ingest the uranium contamination or they get it into an open wound, a cut. I have no idea what it costs. The facility alone costs millions of dollars just to clean them up. I have no idea. There's no way to calculate it, if it could even be done. Hence the reason for never using uranium munitions again in war. If you can't clean it up, don't use it. For many years, 
there have been two parts of society, the military, which tends to be very secret, and then the civilian that includes all the people that are not military. And the the military uh, secrecy is um, directed toward the people who support that military, which is rather incredible. I had had this initial contact with depleted uranium, and when I found they used it in war, I found I, I found it hard to believe that they would do something like this. I mean, they're basically throwing radioactive waste at your enemy. Uh, not only did they spread it all over the um, uh, desert in southern Iraq and the northern part of Kuwait, but uh, and the Bedouin were coming in sick. And uh, they also... Uh, contaminated their own people. So this was the Gulf War illness. I think one of the basic mechanisms was this uh, depleted uranium. And when it came to trying to prove that it was harmless, which of course the military tried to do, they uh, took the money that Congress uh, had implemented and they gave it to a, a firm out in California uh, the Rand Corporation, and told them to do a search of the literature. Well, this had never been used as a weapon in war before, so there wasn't any literature. So they used the literature of uranium mining, and I'll explain in a minute the difference between uranium mining and using it in war. But uh, when you use this uranium in war, uranium, the nature of uranium is to be pyrophoric. If you had uranium here at room temperature in fine granules, it would burst into flames. Uh, it's pyrophoric. Now, when it is used in war, it hits a hardened target. It's uh, You get a pyrophoric response. You'll get a flame. It's a very hot flame, and it changed the nature of war as far as I can tell uh, because uranium burns at 3,000 to 6,000 degrees centigrade, whereas TNT burns at 576 degrees centigrade. So there's a huge difference between those temperatures They've got an extremely high temperature fire. It's high enough to vaporize whatever metal is in the target. It's the target that will uh, vaporize. So your uranium vapor will contain radioactive uranium, which is now ceramic. It's like firing something in a kiln. You've exposed it to extremely high temperature and it's become a ceramic. And at the same time, you're going to get a vaporization of steel, lead, nickel, aluminum, whatever is in the target. And this is released into the air as an aerosol. It's technically called a metal fume. And as it con consolidates and uh, you can breathe it in because the particles are extremely small. I would just like to say a few things about what these uh, very small particles of DU 
do inside of the human body. Uh, we already know that it's very easy for them to get in through the lungs because the lungs have no protection. They just have a, a barrier between the lung and the blood. Uh, and normally something that gets into the lungs has to dissolve to get through that barrier. But the nanoparticles, which are produced with the burning of uranium, uh, they're small enough to go right through into the blood. Uh, now, just to give you an idea of um, the difference between a larger particle, larger meaning in the micron range, say, 2,000, say, two micron particle, which is small enough uh, to get to the deep part of the lung. It would have to dissolve to get through and into the bloodstream. But suppose instead of that two micron particle, you had 2,000 uh, one nano size particle. Now, 2,000 particles that are nano size will go right through not only into the uh, blood vessels, but they can get from the blood vessels into the cells. The larger particle would stay in the blood vessels. Uh, now, if you think of the surface area uh, and imagine this two micron particle, it has a minimum surface area for volume if it's a sphere of diameter two microns. But when you break it up into 2,000 nanoparticles, it's still the same amount of uranium. But the surface area has increased tremendously. And it's the surface area that releases the radioactive particles. So now you have 2,000 tiny particles which can release directly into the tissue their alpha particles. Uh, when you have it into the lump sum of the two micron sphere, some of those alpha particles are released inside the sphere and they can't get out. So they're, it's called self-shielding. So the particle actually shields the alpha particles that are deep inside. And it's only the alpha particles near the surface that can escape into the tissue. So what you're dealing with here, uh, even if you measure a, a two micron uh, diameter particle of uranium, it will not have the same biological effects as 2,000 nanometer size particles. Uh, so you're, you're dealing with something that can spread into any tissue or organ, including the heart, the brain, uh, the liver, or other body organs, uh, whereas the larger particle will tend to dissolve, stay in the, in the uh, arteries or veins, and uh, they'll be cleaned in the liver, and then some will be sent to be stored in the bone, and others will be sent to the kidneys for release. So. Uh, the smaller particles are too small to be uh, to be filtered out by the kidney tubules, so they tend to stay in the body a long time. Now, a a radiation dose is depending on two things. One is how strong the source is, 
think about how strong the sun is. And the second thing is how long you're exposed. So that's like sitting out in the sun for an hour or sitting out for five hours. There's a difference in what happens to you. So uh, these particles that go through the body quickly and are eliminated uh, by the urine are different from the ones that can stay in the body for the rest of your life. Uh, so that it's the length of time here which adds to the severity of the dose. Now, what could they do if they get into the cells? Uh, well, one of the things that the cells do is they make all of the proteins and hormones and enzymes that we need for the body. So in the DNA, which is in the nucleus of the cell, it reproduces itself in pieces. These are what the genes do. And we have billions of genes. And these genes uh, make the protein. They say what's going to happen all down the line of the protein, what goes into it. And then they send it out of the nucleus into the more fluid part of the cell in which the nucleus rests. Now, in that fluid part of the cell, the protein will take a specific form, three-dimensional form. It might curl up and it folds in on itself and it takes a, a very beautiful and very particular three-dimensional form depending on how it's going to work in the body. And it's very important to take the right form. Now, if you have uh, heavy metals and uranium inside of the cell tissue, it can disrupt the form of that protein so that the protein doesn't act properly. It doesn't function. It's got all the right things in it, but if it's not shaped right, it won't fit into the place it's supposed to fit in. Both skyscrapers are on fire. The evacuations have been underway. That the United States on this day is under attack. Most did what they could to escape the rain of wreckage and smoke, but others ran toward the burning buildings. Emergency first responders hoping to rescue the wounded. Hospitals throughout New York stood by, but few patients arrived. Today, the casualties from 9-11 are finally showing up. Everyone praises the dead as heroes, as they should. But there are more living suffering than dead. Detective James Zadroga. I put my gear on and jumped on the bike and uh, raced to the uh, South Tower. And, uh, you know, when I got off the Brooklyn Bridge, it was pretty bad. As soon as we hit West Side Highway, it looked like a war scene. And at that point, basically all we could hear was, you know, sirens. And I said that I'm an EMT. I should go down and help out, do whatever we can. I was set up for triage down below for kind of walking wounded as they came out. I had called my wife and I said, Laurie, 
something bad has happened in Lower Manhattan. I just want to call you to tell you that I'm okay. And just as I said I'm okay, the line, all the lines went dead. I looked and I just saw this wall of black and gray coming at me. They knocked the wind out of me. I laid there. I had to catch my breath. I'm trying to catch your breath. You, you, you're breathing in this black cloud. You know, at that point you couldn't see and uh, tried to clear up my eyes. Yeah, you know, my eyes were burning, I was coughing. Everybody was hacking and, and trying to get the stuff out of their eyes and everything because we don't know what the hell we just swallowed. And you were gagging. It would be, I'd show you this rag. If I shoved it down your throat, it would be the same thing. It was, you, you vomited, violently vomited from it. men were crying in my arms and uh, you know it was kind of it was a little difficult because I still didn't understand myself you know how serious it was all I thought about was um, that I was gonna die right there and uh, how it's funny like I thought I didn't think about God I thought about how selfish I was to do what I do for a living that now my wife is gonna be a widow and my kids are gonna be Sorry. <clears throat> that my kids were going to be orphans, you know. <laughs> the dust cloud and the dust and the... I'll never forget the, the quietness of um, the, new, the, the, the office papers just, you know, floating in the air. Three hundred and forty three firefighters and paramedics were killed in the line of duty that day in Lower Manhattan. Seventy eight police officers died. But hundreds of other uniformed men and women survived the worst attack ever suffered on American soil. At least they thought they had survived. Open. Uh... You couldn't stop. You'd, you'd cough for like five minutes straight. You just couldn't stop coughing. You know, you'd try to fight it back, and it would just come. And this is the EpiPen that I carry. If I have an asthma attack and I'm not by uh, medication, I have to jab it into my thigh so I can get some relief. I was sick immediately. I spent uh, three days in Jamaica Hospital after 9-11 because I kept on having asthma attack after asthma attack. Do you have your other prescriptions? Did you pick them up? Which ones? The Levaxel. And I came home and I had a report back seven in the morning to see a police surgeon. So I just came home, I showered, and I laid down. And when I woke up, I was totally blind. In the wake of the attacks, President Bush immediately signed a major disaster declaration 
activating the FRP, the Federal Response Plan. I want the entire country to know that of all of the employees at FEMA, everyone is absolutely working their hardest to do everything they can to bring all the federal resources to bear on this desperate situation. The Homeland Security Rules and Presidential Decision Directive 62 uh, mandates that the Environmental Protection Agency be the lead agency for the activities where there's a terrorist attack as it relates to environmental protection. Oh, I'm sorry. Christy Todd Whitman, the administrator of EPA, went to New York City and addressed the people there. We've had concern we're going to continue to monitor, but right now, as I will tell you, everything we're getting back from the sampling that we're doing is below background levels. There is not a reason for the general public to be concerned. It's not going to be a particular hazard unless you have breathing difficulties, heart condition, and you just shouldn't be out here walking around and trying to get exercise. So that's not appropriate, obviously. Anybody with uh, half a brain would probably look at that cloud and say, this can't be good for you. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, when you're called to war, you don't say, well, I, I'm not going in there, you just go. But what exactly was in that burning pile where the World Trade Center once stood? According to final studies later published by the EPA and other government agencies, a devastating toxic soup containing more than 2,500 contaminants. Asbestos fibers, once inhaled, cannot be expelled by the lungs and cause various cancers. Benzene, another carcinogen, suppresses the immune system and can cause leukemia. Mercury is toxic to the nervous system and especially the kidneys. Lead and cadmium are toxic to the respiratory tract and can also cause irreparable kidney damage. Polycystic aromatic hydrocarbons are the chemicals in cigarettes that cause lung, laryngeal, and mouth and throat cancer. PCBs commonly cause severe skin rashes and can also cause liver damage. Tiny particulates in the dust itself lodge in the heart, causing ischemic heart disease, often fatal. You see two 110-story buildings collapse and nothing's more than small little pieces. Uh, where did the asbestos go? Where did all the concrete dust go? Where did all the fiberglass go? Where did all this go? And anybody could see that it went into the air. We have seen people being dragged off that pile, you know, eyes streaming, gasping and coughing and choking for breath. We knew very well that people were being exposed to irritant materials as well as cancer-causing agents really from the start and probably had um, health consequences that are unlikely to have been faced in other disasters. The EPA was quick to reassure everyone that the air was safe. Like right now, we're not getting any elevated levels that indicate concern. But given the chaos of those first days, how much could the EPA have really known about the contents of that chemical soup? 
In the early days, it was difficult for EPA to have access. The folks who wanted to go in and set up the monitors didn't have access. There were problems with electricity. There were problems because the equipment was not available, nor were the analysts available to do the work in the first few days following the collapse of the World Trade Center. So far, we have done over two dozen air samples. We're doing air monitoring, constant air monitoring. We've taken dust samples. In fact, by September 13th, the EPA had taken only 10 ambient air samples in Lower Manhattan, according to the EPA's own data published later. Well, if there's any good news out of all this, it's that uh, everything we've tested for, which includes asbestos, lead, and VOCs, have been below any level of concern for the general public health. Certain toxins had not been tested. There were other contaminants of potential concern, and those included PCBs, PAHs, dioxin, and I believe some other metals. You cannot find what you don't look for. Uh, this is true. And um, the agency could have done a much better job of looking. It's not a health concern. Now, it's not nice. I'm not saying it smells nice. I'm not saying this is nice. But from a real health problem, we don't have to worry. But according to a report later issued by its inspector general, the EPA's reassuring public statements that week were not based on science. They were based on White House policy. The White House, the Council on Environmental Quality, EPA, and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration worked together on the press releases. The White House had the final word, so EPA did not feel that it had ownership of those press releases. The White House Council on Environmental Quality is headed by James Connaughton, who was not a scientist. He had been appointed to his post by President Bush only months before 9-11. His previous experience? representing large corporations in disputes about cleaning toxic waste sites, working against the EPA. White House uh, Council on Environmental Quality is not on this. They're not even a part. They shouldn't have been involved at all. We were told that CEQ had a desire to protect the national security and to get Wall Street open, and that was the reason that the press releases were changed. The original title of the EPA's September 13th press release was subtitled, Testing Terrorized Sites for Environmental Hazards. The subtitle after the CEQ's revisions reassures public about environmental hazards. The original draft of the EPA's September 16th press release noted several debris samples that showed levels of asbestos ranging from 2.1 to 3.3% explaining that anything above 1% is defined as asbestos-containing material. At that point, the area should have been evacuated because we had a presumed assumption of hazard, and then testing should be, have been done and people allowed back in. Instead, when the statement was released, the CEQ had changed the wording. The debris samples were now described as containing small percentages of asbestos, slightly above the 1% trigger for defining asbestos material. 
our work showed that more than 25% of the samples exceeded the 1% benchmark for asbestos. That's not a health-based benchmark. In fact, an EPA expert testified after 9-11 that a half a percent can be just as dangerous as 20%. This one is wonderful. This is this was deleted from, from the draft. The concern raised by these samples would be for the workers at the cleanup site and for those workers who might be returning to their offices on Monday, September 17th. So you take out the part where people are told that they need to be concerned. When the president visited Ground Zero on that first weekend, his message was clear. This was not a time for caution, but for action. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people, and the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. President of the United States, made a PR visit to Ground Zero and didn't wear his respirator, giving the false impression to the people that it was safe not to wear a respirator. President of the United States himself gave that false impression. There appeared to be a great motive to return everything back to normal as quickly as possible. Uh, particularly in the financial district. I'm looking forward to getting back to work. Do you know the condition of your office? I believe we're fine. I've been told we're fine. I live down here. I haven't been back home, but I know that it'll be fine. We're told that they have checked the air quality and that it's all right, but uh, I'm always dubious about something like that. I'm hoping it's all right. I'm not happy being in the area. Ladies and gentlemen, our heroes will now open the marketplace, the green button. On September 18th, EPA Administrator Christine Whitman released a sweeping statement clearly designed to get America back to work, saying, Given the scope of the tragedy from last week, I am glad to reassure the people of New York and Washington, D.C. that their air is safe to breathe. I was horrified. We knew that she couldn't have been addressing all the irritants that were present in the air, and we knew that very little monitoring had been done at that at that time. And I strongly suspected that it had economic and political motivations rather than it being based on a real concern for public health. The air quality is safe and acceptable. and. Um, I know there are people that are concerned about it and people that um, are worried about it, but that, that's, um, that's just the reality. If the mayor say it's okay, then I believe him. It's okay. With Wall Street open for business, others who worked in the area were expected to return to their jobs. People were brought back into contaminated areas when they should not have been. They were put at tremendous risk. And when we returned to the offices, there was dust all over the insides. There were three to five inches of dust on the window seals, and the windows were old anyway. So the dust kept seeping in, in through the windows. 
we were stuck with that for six months. And at the beginning of the disaster, a number of my colleagues were walking around at work, like me, wearing a heap of respirator on their face. But you can imagine trying to talk on the telephone and practice law when you're wearing one of these. I sound like Darth Vader, frankly, when I'm wearing one of these. Within months, workers in the area began to report respiratory illnesses. And they were being transferred out or relocated because they were coming down with asthma. Sometime in January, I started with the nosebleed. And then I started to get this soreness in my chest. At this point, I have become allergic to every known antibiotic. I have had so many episodes of bronchitis and pneumonia that I'm now allergic to everything. At Ground Zero, an army of workers and volunteers, over 5,000 people per day, began a cleanup process that would last for months. Below their feet, the fires continued to smolder until December of 2001. We had a slow-motion incinerator that for three months burned at ground level, creating computer parts and so on into a fine aerosol the people above it were breathing. It was laughable to police officers and firefighters on that pile to say the air was safe to breathe. There was particles in the air for months after. I personally feel that once the situation had come where there were no more people to be rescued, they should have put a barbed wire fence around the entire site and then put the fires out. Why the heck was there this enormous rush to clean the site up? For heaven's sake, make the site safe and then clean it up. I went down in the pit to, to tunnel rat and look for victims. And I started, uh, I was suffocating. And I thought, how ironic that I, I beat that building, that I survived, and, and I'm going to suffocate in this hole because I thought I was dying. I was not given a, a respirator. I don't know if anybody in my firehouse was given a respirator. If they were, they weren't working with me. We were not equipped with the proper breathing equipment, just to start the basic protections that you would see on a construction site or any kind of place with materials in the air. We did not have them. And we never had the proper materials for weeks and weeks after that. I was given a respirator, I think, when I went in February. And it was cumbersome. It just got in your way. We were digging for, for bodies. We were digging, and it was hard work. I probably didn't wear it most of the time because they had told us that it was okay. When the White House sends a message out saying the air is clear, we tend to believe it. No one was allowed into the Pentagon cleanup without the proper respirators, without uh, washing down so there would not be air release. But in World Trade Center, it was totally opposite. People were allowed on site without any protective gear or with paper masks or with the wrong respirators and were allowed to work with their respirators off. If they had told me and told my friends and told the cops and told the iron workers, you gotta wear this or you're gonna die, everybody would have worn it. You'd be a fool not to. It was months before any systematic decontamination procedures were put in place. You don't 
leave a site without doing a vehicle washdown, uh, without assuring that you're not literally taking the contamination from the site proper and, and spreading it. There was nothing about decontamination probably till November. I remember going to eat lunch someplace and they made us walk through a bath. That really brought it home to me, like, you know, why are they decontaminating us now? You know, it's a, it's a little late for this, isn't it? And, you know, they never told you, you know, throw your clothes in the garbage, wash them, wash them separately, you know, that was it. And, you know, to this day, that baffles me. I saw a couple of people walking around with uh, surgical masks and things of that sort, but I never got one. Detectives John Wolcott and Richard Volpe spent months combing through World Trade Center wreckage at the Fresh Kills landfill on Staten Island. We'd go out and with rakes and shovels and stuff and just go through all the debris looking for, you know, body parts and different things of that sort to uh, make identifications. The, the weird thing was it was very cold when we were up there. I believe it was, it was in the middle of the winter, but the ground wasn't frozen. The ground kind of like bubbled underneath your feet, which was kind of strange to me. Like, that can't be healthy. You know, you're coughing a lot. I mean, for days after, we're coughing up blood and different things like that. After 9-11, I developed a cough, nasal congestion, burning in my ears really bad, and I really never thought about it. I went to the doctors. I tried not to go out sick. And then I went on vacation in 2004 with my family, uh, and I came back to my 40th birthday. told me I had a mass in my chest. And I'm not crying for myself, I cry for my family because I'm worried about them being without me. I can't breathe. My throat is constantly sore. I have mercury in my system and God knows what else. And this is short term. What will happen five to ten years from now? No one knows. Detective James Adroga. I expect that the health, you know, sort of experts are really going to have a challenge to determine what's going on with these people over time. Uh, I went home and started to cut the grass. At one time I had to actually stop and sit down and catch my breath. And I knew that wasn't good. Like I could feel that I had like smoke inhalation and I coughed quite a bit and I coughed up a lot of bit, but I never felt better. Then one of my first patients, maybe the very first was John Graham, who was a health and safety expert for the Carpenters Union and also an EMT. He had developed very severe shortness of breath, chest tightness, wheezing, a full picture of asthma that we were afraid was going to occur among these responders. He also had clear evidence of sinus problems with severe headaches, nasal congestion, facial pressure, post-nasal drip. So he had the full picture of sinusitis as well. Nice and deeply. Mouth open. Good. Slowly. In August of 2002, Dr. Stephen Levin and his colleagues at Mount Sinai Hospital launched a World Trade Center screening program. A little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Well, the screening program was established really as a way to evaluate people's health status as a result of what they had done and what they had been exposed to at Ground Zero. 
um, and to make sure that people got referred for appropriate care. By the time the formal screening program ended in 2004, we had seen nearly 12,000, just a few shy of 12,000. In a way, John confirmed for us all of the concerns that we had about what this responder group was at risk for. That's a lot of pills. Uh, it's progressed. The asthma and the reactive airway disease and the burns in my esophagus and lungs were initial. And now with the sinuses and the reflux and the heart are relatively new, I would say in the last three to four months. airway disease. Um, from what I understand, it's, it's asthma, but it's not asthma. It's not my lungs, it's my airway. After going through the Mount Sinai 9-11 uh, monitoring program, they found uh, about a half a dozen uh, nodules on my lungs, and uh, they found something on my kidney. For two years after he worked the pile, Firefighter Tim Duffy avoided going to the doctor until an injury forced a visit. I knew because of my lung situation that I should stay away from them as long as possible, and I had stayed away. The fire department doctor just looked me straight in the eye and said, you're done. And I said, I can go home now? And he said, no, you're done. You're never going back to the firehouse. And I was crushed. I was crushed. It, it is what it is. You take this test, your lungs are bad, you're done. They kicked me off the job. I didn't look to get off the job. You know, you try to do the right thing for your family, you know, um, trying to build them something here that when I'm gone, you know, that she has something. I don't think I'll ever be able to go back into the workforce. I'm such a liability. I don't know anybody that'd hire me medically. One doctor in particular came out and told me that, you know, unfortunately myself and the guys that were with me that day and digging, um, we were all going to come down with some form of cancer within 10, 5, 10, 15 years, and we'd all be dead. When is your surgery? Oh, we find out Thursday. Oh, okay. It's uh, about two or three times a week he goes to the doctor. I have uh, lung scarring. I have uh, growths that are getting bigger in my lungs. Uh, the beginning is emphysema. Long-term possibility is cancer. How are you feeling? Oh, considering very well. He suffers from um, pulmonary post-inflammatory bronchitis. It's a lot of scarring and um, inflammation that we think is attributable to uh, the uh, inhalation of the noxious dust. His lungs function only 60% of what we would predict for somebody his age and size. Yeah, let me go get those blood tests. I was having chest pains and I, I had it rechecked, and now I need a from perfect heart to a quadruple bypass, which I'm having in a week or two. All right, I have your blood test. 
I thought that I was going to be able to tell you that your um, heart disease and your cholesterol problem is all genetic, but the blood tests really don't suggest that. So it, it would really? suggest that there might be something else going on. You know, we could talk about diet, but um, I think we'll have to... Uh, vegetarian. I know. <laughs> I know. I I've never smoked in my life. been a vegetarian over 30 years. Don't drink. Don't do drugs. And, uh, 43 and I'm having a quadruple bypass. What's causing that? And yeah, where'd that come from? If you die from being down at 9-11, of course it's not going to be chalked up to 9-11. It's a pre-existing condition. Excuse me. I, I don't buy it. as I'm taking it out, the stuff is coming up. As time has gone on, I've had more symptomology, more illnesses. In 2003, I was hospitalized for three and a half weeks because they couldn't find out what was wrong with me. And they did a spinal tap to try to catch the toxins as they were moving through my system. And they weren't able to trace it. This, this is my sanity coming out and dealing with the, the rose bushes. You know, you got to find beauty in something because when you're in pain every day, you got to have something to, to look forward to. I have nasal problems. I have <coughs> uh, the asthma. I have nerve damage. I have sciatica. I have limited use of my left side. Because I'm chemically sensitive because of all the stuff I was uh, exposed to, the toxins I was exposed to down in 9-11, I had to strip all these walls down. I had to bleach them down, ammonia, so I could put up a paint that was not going to cause me any type of reactions. And then the carpet has to be hypoallergenic, and it's got special padding so the allergens don't get trapped. And here is my happy HEPA filter. It goes 24-7 because if I don't have the HEPA filter, I don't breathe too well. And the big thing with asthma at this point is it's enlarging people's hearts because when you have an asthma attack, it has to compensate for the fact that you can't breathe. So now people who have asthma down uh, at ground zero are worrying about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which all has to do with breathing. EMS is left in the dust, just like this left on here. It's all dust. All of us left in the dust. One of the EPA's federal mandates is to lead cleanup efforts following a toxic disaster. But they did not take responsibility for cleaning up inside the buildings near Ground Zero until May of 2002. Can you send people back into this area, into this community, and you ain't even tested the dust? Instead, the agency dispensed advice. If you go back home and you have a dusty environment, get yourself a certified asbestos um, cleanup operation to, to help you with it. Um, and if you've just got a minimal amount of dust, um, use wet mops use wet 
claws so that, you know, just in case there's anything there, you're getting it out. For the indoor air, there was some confusion. The EPA said that it did not uh, early on participate in the indoor air regulatory activities uh, because the city of New York said that it didn't want the help. Uh, that's what EPA said. The city of New York said that was wrong, that it would have accepted any help it could have gotten. to reopen the building. That was all part of the general spirit of the time, which was, let's show the terrorists, let's get back up into downtown, you know, get back up on the horse. They told us they cleaned the ventilation system. Everybody goes back into the building. The media show up. Look at these brave kids. Aren't they a model for us all? And then later we find out the ventilation system was not clean. So the kids are inhaling deeply this toxic dust. Um, there were signs of illness very early on. There were rashes, nosebleeds, new onset asthma that can last the rest of their lives, chronic sinusitis. Some of the kids were taking um, medication that included steroids, uh, and chemical bronchitis, chronic bronchitis. The list goes on and on. We know that there are people, both adults and children, who developed asthma as a result of coming back to that area too soon. We know that there are some people who are still working or living in environments that are still contaminated and this material can be resuspended into the air to cause additional health consequence. The residents who, who live near the area, who believe the government, run a high risk of health effects 20 years down the line, including cancer. The, uh, the workers already are experiencing serious health effects from working there and believing EPA and the government. The obvious response was to presume that the area was heavily polluted and needed to be tested and cleaned. The EPA refused to make that presumption except for one place, the EPA's offices in the area. EPA Region 2's offices were cleaned in an entirely different way than Ground Zero was, uh, and um, frankly more protectively. EPA did want to put some statements in some of those early press releases about how to do the cleanup, but that information was deleted from the press releases, again, by CEQ. Now, obviously, if the EPA treated us the way they treated themselves, they would have cleaned up first and asked questions later. Taking some dust samples, they send this to a lab to analyze asbestos, lead, and several other toxins that are out there. Joel Kupferman is co-counsel in a class action lawsuit filed by a number of residents, office workers, students, and firefighters from Lower Manhattan. The suit names Christine Todd Whitman personally, as well as other EPA officials, claiming that they allowed thousands of people to return to their homes and workplaces in Lower Manhattan with no proper cleanup having occurred. Someone that lives at 150 Franklin Street, a person named Linda Caspi, came to us saying that she's really concerned about possible asbestos contamination. She lives on the top floor and we discovered dust right in the elevator shaft. Uh, we tested and we came up with 2.6% asbestos. And then the guy from EPA said, are you sure you didn't plant this here? And I said, plant it? <laughs> where would I find it? I, where would I find asbestos? You know? The Deutsche Bank building, right next to Ground Zero, was damaged beyond repair in the attacks and scheduled for demolition. 
Massive quantities of World Trade Center dust permeated the entire structure. Today I'm releasing documents that show extraordinary levels of contamination present in the Deutsche Bank building. It would be nothing short of criminal negligence if we do not make certain that this teardown is done correctly so that we don't risk thousands of additional cases of respiratory distress and other diseases. It's nothing you can just kind of vacuum and scrub up. So it's going to be a problem when they take that building down. And it's going to be just like deja vu all over again. The demolition has been indefinitely postponed. The toxic legacy of the World Trade Center remains piled inside. I got the kids with me. I'm in uniform, and we're we're on the higher levels, and we hear uh, the North Tower get hit. We go over into the window and look at it, and the tower's on fire. And I'm like, oh my God, we got to get out of here. And as we go to leave, we look and we see the airplane coming. We go to go hit the uh, stairs, and the stairs are just packed with people. And I'm trying to hold on to my two kids. And, you know, I'm looking, things are getting closer and closer, and I'm yelling at everybody, you know, I got two kids, let them through, let them through. And then I hear a loud crash. I wake up in a cold sweat. He doesn't go to sleep. He's afraid to go to sleep. He's still afraid to go to sleep. When you go to sleep, it's like I said, it's, it's like going into a haunted house, you know, a fun house. You never know what's going to jump out at you. Mm -hmm. right, it's like that falling asleep. It's like a, a waiting cat ready to pounce. Chris Bauman's bypass heart surgery has been successful, but recovery will be slow. Healing is doing fine. There's no infection. Uh, they had to crack open the sternum, remove the sternum, so that, that's got to heal. That takes uh, several months. While I was in there, I was having problems with my breathing. We actually met a specialist that's going to start looking into uh, my lung problems. And uh, I had a CAT scan done, and they had found two spots on it. So he's going to do further investigation on that once this is healed. This is August 18th of 2004. Now it's down and it's about $7,000 bills. It's a never well, it took four years, but they finally put me out on a uh, disability pension. I got some of my lung stuff in there. You got to fight. And it's like fighting for scraps from a dog, you know. Where'd you find that? I don't even know who the bill will take. I guess when the next question is, this is it. This is the, the city looks at it as a bottom line financial situation. They have to reduce their liability. That's wrong. There's no police officer that's going to stand up and say, I'm sick and deserve a pension from September 11th. It's not the color of our character. I'm not going to find it. What they should be doing to these police officers that come in and say they're ill is to take them in, first off, treat them with respect, but then give them the treatment that they deserve. Money takes over people. You know, that, that's basically what it came to with the government. You know, let's get Wall Street going, let's get the money flowing, let's get the system flowing, and, uh, you know, as people die off, oh well. Right now, I don't know. 
know, everything I had planned out, everything I had drawn out that I wanted to do. I look to my future and I see a stop sign. I see a big stop sign. My 11.99 union. I had insurance through there. Okay, this is the first cancellation of my benefits. It says it was canceled June 2nd, 2004. But if you look, the date that I got the letter was August 17th, 2004. They canceled my insurance two months prior to notifying me. They, they take it away, they give it back to me. They take it away, they give it back to me. They take it away, they give it back to me. And it's always, a, I'm tired of fighting. That's 20 grand worth of bills sitting there. That pile there is, oh, close to 10 grand. Workman's comp, you get $400 a week, and you get a check every two weeks when it shows up, if it shows up. I mean, right now, Workman's comp, um, they're two checks behind with me. I just got Social Security Disability recently. That was a big fight. Everything that you try to do, whether it's an application process or, or whether it's, it's a benefit that you're entitled to, you have to fight for. You know what? I'd love to go out and work. But you know what? Physically, I can't. On the, the morning of September 14th, I was on the pile on the South Tower. I saw an enormous swatch of red and all of a sudden I called everybody and five or six guys came around me. As, as, as we dug further, we had, we had seen white and then a, a corner of blue with a star and the thing was enormous. It was the actual flag that was flying on top of the towers that came down. I got a commendation from President Bush. The four-man rescue team was recognized for recovering the flag. Mike McCormick has reactive airway disease, gastroesophageal reflux, nodules on his left lung, and chronic sinusitis. But in order to receive workman's compensation, a judge needs proof that he was even there, despite his citation from President Bush. Do you swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth? Nothing but the truth, so I'll be done. So, my God, I was there from three hours from after the buildings went down and I spent about two or three hours a day on the pile giving out supplies and so forth. Where did you sleep when you were down? Down at Battery Park. In what, where, what facility? What type of facility? In the Humvee. In terms of awards, we'll make the following findings. From October 20, 2004 to date and continuing, the claimant will be paid at a rate of $200 per week. The claimant can be classified as having a permanent partial disability. After over a year and a half, Mike McCormick has finally won part of the workman's compensation coming to him. Others have not been so successful. Every time you go back for a review, it's three or four months. 90 days, 90 days, 90 days. Wow. It's years of 90 days. EMT technician John Graham has petitioned the Workman's Comp Board three times. When I first started this, I was a lot more aggressive. I had a lot more strength, and now I see their plan. It's kind of like, wait, they'll go away because they'll lose their strength. And what is most horrible is that so many of our patients have had to fight for a year, two years, to get treatment money in addition to wage replacement and then when they're successful the maximum they can get is four hundred dollars a week
I'm angry. Um, I'm angry that um, people can't move quicker. You know, like Social Security. Come on, guys. Are you going to give it to me post-mortem? John's mounting bills forced him to rent out his home to tenants. He moved into a basement next door. The last time we spoke, mm-hmm. you had a nice house right next right. door, right? Right. I'm not really, as you can see, I'm not really that uh, needy. I can I can live just a little place to lay my head, but it's still <coughs> very difficult. And this living situation I'm in now is not... Uh, any good for my health at all. It's cold, it's damp, it's unheated, it's unlit. It's, I guess it's pretty, it's close, it's close to homeless as you can get with still having a roof over your head. I'm on uh, medication to uh, lower the pressure of my kidneys. My kidneys have a tremendous amount of pressure on them and they've kind of um, imploded. Uh, they're bleeding and leaking protein and, and that kind of stuff. I don't want to live here. I mean, does living here make you depressed? Does being in this room make you depressed? Uh, The same kind of illnesses are seen in both groups, whether they came on 9-11 itself or came, let's say, at some point in latter October to join the rescue and recovery efforts. I believe it was like six or eight months after September 11. Basically, I was having chest pains and shortness of breath. And uh, they did blood work, and the blood work came out so bad that they thought it was a mistake. Detective Richard Volpe has contracted a rare kidney disease. Right now, I'm uh, well below 50% function in both my kidneys. Are they going to be able to do a transplant or help you? Well, they're going to, I mean, I'm going to have to be put on a list, but usually it takes about five years before they can find a donor. So I'll probably end up on dialysis before. It's irreversible, the damage. Didn't really say His partner, Detective John Wolcott, went to the hospital after collapsing from shortness of breath. I found it very weird that I was asked uh, a whole handful of questions about was I ever exposed to radiation or benzene, and I never really put two and two together until somebody at the hospital says, don't remember being exposed to benzene, that's an airline fuel. And all that green stuff you saw bubbling out in the landfill for months, that's radiation. He's been diagnosed with leukemia. It's hard, I mean, you know, my daughter wants to, she's two years old, so she's active and she doesn't understand why I can't play with her. 100% or whatever. I mean, it took seven months for me to even lift it. They're both guys in their late 30s. One has kidney failure, one has leukemia. The only thing they had in common, other than being in immensely physically good shape and health, etc., is they worked for five months together, hand in hand, at fresh kills. In September of 2004, David Warby filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of first responders who had fallen ill. And that has been the government response. Wait, deny, wait, deny, wait, deny. Back then, he had a few hundred clients. Today, the lawsuit includes over 8,100 police officers, firefighters, and rescue workers from 9-11, all of whom have fallen ill as a result of toiling in the toxic ruins. All of these array of blood cell cancers in the people I have who are alive and some of the people I have of, of whom 
are no longer alive are statistically so overwhelming that it couldn't have been from anything else but this exposure. The suit specifically names the various companies hired by New York City to oversee the removal of 1.2 million tons of debris, claiming that more safety precautions should have been used to protect workers from the World Trade Center dust. When you have a carcinogen such as benzene and you have dioxin which accelerates the carcinogen and then you have lead and mercury which act as immunosuppressants all functioning at the same time, that which used to take 10 years to get in leukemia or cancer can take two years. Warby and his clients are seeking compensation and funding, not just to screen World Trade Center workers for illnesses, but to treat them as well. I think that there will be long-term health effects, everything from uh, mesothelioma, these uh, awful respiratory illnesses, cancers, uh, leukemia, Whoever held authority needs to be accountable for what was not done. They told me it was safe. They told thousands of my coworkers that it was safe. And they're all sick now. And they're not helping us. Well, you're talking to a Native American. <laughs> I once said, I think uh, a few weeks after having the job, uh, I, I let it slip. I said, oh, um, I didn't know the government uh, treats all people like Indians. <laughs> in the class action suit filed against Christine Whitman by those living and working in Lower Manhattan, there has been a development. There is not a reason for the general public to be concerned. In February of 2006, federal judge Deborah Betts denied the former EPA administrator immunity, writing that Whitman's deliberate and misleading statements made to the press shocks the conscience. Her landmark ruling sets a precedent for holding federal officials personally responsible for making official statements that might endanger the public. All of us know that many, many people lost their lives on 9-11, yet many, many more lost their health. This is a long-term problem. Thousands are sick today, and they will probably need care for decades to come. Rescue workers in the future will be influenced by how the rescue workers were treated. If they learn that you run to a fire and you risk your life and you become sick and there's no medical care for you, I, I think that's a very dangerous message to put out to the American rescue uh, volunteer and professional field. They don't want to acknowledge the sick who are living. I'm not the only one out there. Detective James Adroga. Can you welcome Joseph Adroga? Thank you. Uh, I hope I can get through this. <clears throat> I'm the father of James Adroga, who was my son, but mostly he was my best friend. <clears throat> On 9-11, he arrived home to tell his wife that the towers were just struck he told his wife, who was seven months pregnant with her child, that he had to return to work. James stated to me many times that was one of the hardest things he could ever do. But he told her it was his job and he had to go. And he could never live with himself if he did it. 
Detective James Adroga worked almost 500 hours at Ground Zero with virtually no protection. You know, paper mask did absolutely nothing. He said within five minutes they were clogged up or he sweated, and he said half the time you couldn't even wear it. He said because it just didn't last. Uh, he, he did express one story to me that he saw uh, a lieutenant driver could walk by with five masks and he, uh, respirators. And he asked her, the lieutenant if he could have one of the respirators. And the lieutenant said, no, this is, uh, I can't give you one. This is for the brass, you know. They started to develop, as they called, the World Trade Center cough in October, which was roughly a month later. He started coughing, going to the doctor, thinking he had a you know, cold or flu or croup or whatever. Uh, you know, he was doing nebulizer three times a day. He was a acid reflux. He had uh, stomach problems. He had throat problems. He had short-term memory loss at this time. On January 5th, 2006, Detective Zadroga succumbed to black lung disease. When I went upstairs that morning on the 5th, I saw him laying on the floor. I mean, I knew right away he was dead as soon as I opened the door. Uh, the baby was fell asleep in his room that night on the bed, watching television with him. So she was on the bed. I was on the floor with him. And the baby wakes up and said, what's the matter? And I said, your father's gone. James Adroga's death was widely reported as the first fatality officially linked to toxic exposure at Ground Zero. Many do not believe that he was the first and fear he will not be the last. What's scary about that is that we all spent time down there and after Felix passed away and now Debbie and numerous others, um, we're all pretty frightened as to who's next. We've had deaths we don't want anymore. We have sicknesses we want no more. We want the information so that we can make educated medical decisions. This is an outrage to treat people this way. Not to be able to make sure that they are taken care of, to watch their lives be disrupted, turned upside down, watch them worry about whether they're going to be able to pay the mortgage, whether they're going to be able to keep their kids in school. These people deserve better than that. Stop the lies. Please, stop lying to people. Um, I know it would have cost more money to do it differently. I know it would have cost more money, and maybe it wouldn't have been in the best interest of the security of the country to keep Wall Street closed for another couple of weeks and, and that kind of stuff, but it's not fair to kill people. Yeah, we were basically ignored and forgotten. I don't know. The old stand behind your president no matter what because he's the leader of your country is been changed in my mind. I, I still believe you respect the title, but you can't respect the man anymore. We're neglected. We're absolutely neglected. We are the dust that they're trying to sweep away and hope it's going to blow away. We have become the lost souls and the dust that are still left at ground zero.
in the USA. What does it really cost? Well, if the U.S. federal government applied its own truth in labeling laws to the price of goods and services produced in this country, we'd quickly see 30% of the retail price goes to federal taxes. Another 10% is what it cost American businesses to comply with federal regulations. For some businesses, it's even more. Add it up. About 40% of every dollar you spend is directly attributed to federal corporation taxes and or federal income taxes. And this doesn't include the approximate 8% for state taxes and up to an additional 10% for excise taxes. Take a $30,000 car. Subtract the federal taxes and regulatory costs and that same car would cost you $18,000. A $75 sweater. Eliminate the federal taxes and regulatory costs and the sweater would cost $45. A $60 bag of groceries, $36. A $79 pair of shoes, $47.40. A dollar value meal double cheeseburger, $0.60. Cents. Seem more affordable? Now take a $400,000 new home. Eliminate the federal government's share. And that same home would cost you $240,000. Eliminate federal taxes, and you'd have more money in your pocket. Eliminate federal taxes, and you'd have more money to take a vacation. Eliminate federal taxes, and you'd have more money to pay off loans. Eliminate federal taxes, and you'd have more money to save for retirement. Eliminate federal taxes, and you'd have more money to buy that lake home. And that's on the things you buy. Now let's look at what they take from your paycheck. Eliminate the federal income taxes, Social Security, and Medicare deductions, and a $52,000 wage earner's net pay would jump from $1,500 to $1,986.50. Add it up. Nearly 25% of what you earn goes directly to the federal government, and 40% of what you spend goes directly to the federal government. That's 65% in hidden costs. What do you get in return? Let's take Social Security. Depending on your income, you may pay into the system three to $500 per month. At retirement, the maximum payout is $2,053 per month. And even that is taxed if you have additional income. But what would happen if a married couple saved $300 a month each over 35 years at 7% compounded interest? You would have over $1 million. The nearly $75,000 annual interest of income alone far exceeds the Social Security maximum annual payout. And you still have your million-dollar nest egg to provide for yourself and pass down to your children, your grandchildren, or even pay for your children's education. 
ready to take your money back? Reduce the tax burden on America, and all of a sudden, there's more money circulating in the economy. Take your money back, and all of a sudden, our products and services are more competitively priced at home and abroad. Take your money back, and all of a sudden, it's profitable again to manufacture products in the United States. Take your money back, and all of a sudden, American companies are hiring highly skilled, highly paid workers to meet their manufacturing demand. Take your money back, and all of a sudden, America would be the stable economic leader of the free world again. Seem far-fetched? It's not. Could the government operate without federal income taxes? Yes. Prior to 1913, there was no federal income tax. Don't we need the federal agencies that federal taxes support? No. Agencies supported by federal taxes, such as the FDA, ATF, and the IRS, are regulatory agencies. Not only are these federal agencies unconstitutional, they are illegal. The free market would regulate itself better, with greater efficiency. Americans would be richer and freer. And the cost of these agencies have grown out of control. The Bureau of Economic Analysis Statistics for 2005 reported the average salary for the 1.8 million federal civilian workers is $106,579. The average salary in the U.S. private sector is $53,289, less than half. Wouldn't charitable organizations suffer? No. Currently, 75% of American families give to charity. With more money in their pockets, Americans would be even more generous with their donations. So, what would we give up? Nothing. Since federal income taxes support only 42% of the total federal budget, the government would still operate effectively with the remaining 58% of the budget. And federal workers would be absorbed into the burgeoning economy by the private sector. To put it in perspective, Reducing the $2.8 trillion 2007 federal budget by 42% would still leave $1.6 trillion, the same amount as the total federal budget for 1997. There would be no need for a national sales tax that only replaces one tax for another, and it will not reduce government spending. But. These numbers pale by comparison if you consider the national debt. As of January 2008, our country's public debt is over $9 trillion. The estimated population of the United States is 304 million. That means each citizen's share of the debt is $30,241, and that's over and beyond what you pay in taxes. Regardless of which political party is in control, there's no incentive for politicians to reduce spending. 
The only way to end this spending spree is to take away the government's checkbook and credit card and let them know the joyride is over. Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. Um, today, Alfred Addisk will be joining James Corbett of the Corbett Report as they join each other each day, or each Thursday, I should say, and uh, uh, I will be joined with uh, after the market report with Wendy Wilson of Apothecary Herbs. She's got some great information. We're going to be talking about robo-docs. Sounds like a, a great uh, interview with Wendy. But first, let's get to the market report for Thursday, May 14th, 2015. Uh, Gold prices hit a three-month high today. Of course, we had a great day yesterday, so we had some good follow-through with gold. Uh, 
It's off the highs of the day, but still, um, I would have liked to have seen it close above that 125, or I should say 1224 level, but we're close. Uh, gold is up 640 at 1222. Silver's up 31 cents at 1751, and silver the silver's futures remain at a three-month high today also. The U.S. dollar hit a nearly a four-month low in overnight trading. Uh, it did rebound. Um, but uh, let's go on with the platinum. Platinum was ten dollars at eleven sixty-two, and palladium down four at seven eighty-five. The USDX today down point two six at ninety-three forty-two, and pressure on oil down seventy-three, and that brings us back down below sixty at fifty-nine seventy-seven. And the paper markets today, they were up strong. Uh, they opened and they stayed strong, about 180 for most of the day. Uh, and it's uh, topping out at 191, 191 points, up at 18,252. The NASDAQ, let's see, is uh, up 69 points, 5,050. The S&P up 22 at 2121. And 10-year yield, 2.24, down just a little. <clears throat> but the euro, of course, with all that pressure that we've seen on the U.S. index, U.S. dollar, uh, you have the euro trading at 1.14%. I guess there was some sort of a holiday in European markets, so uh, uh, not a lot of action they're fairly quiet in Europe, and uh, the Asian markets also were fairly quiet with the Shanghai doing the best. Um, let's see if there's any information here that I'd like to share with you before we bring on Wendy. Uh, the U.S. job market today, that did help lift the stock markets uh, today. Applications for unemployment aid fell last week. Interesting. They say sending the four-week average down to its lowest level in 15 years. That means it's the lowest level since April of 2000. You know, it's hard to compare today's jobs, the unemployment, to April of 2000. And uh, certainly, it's a lot of people falling off, and they don't get their benefits anymore. I don't think it's so much as a great. Um, job recovery. So again, you have to look to see why the, you know, why is it at the lowest level since April of 2000? Uh, we also have falling prices, the producer price index uh, that tracks the prices of goods and services before they reach consumers. That fell 0.4% last month. And again, it's just another sign that the Federal Reserve could be holding off and raising key interest rates until later this floor or later this fall. As uh, with uh, that particular index, it would point to inflation not being a big issue, so therefore the Fed's going to wait. So I can't wait to see what they're going to come up with in September uh, to keep the Fed from moving those interest rates higher. But, uh, um, you know, they're between a rock and a hard place, folks. Not a good place to be, and it's not a good place to be if you don't have any gold and silver. Uh, with them being between the rock and the hard place. So give us a call at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. You don't want to be caught between the rock and the hard place without your gold. Wendy Wilson should be here with Apothecary Herbs. Good afternoon, Wendy. 
Good afternoon, Melody. How you doing? I'm doing just great, just great. And uh, you're going to talk a little bit about uh, these uh, robo-docs? Yeah, we, we've got this data science industry that's going to pretty much infiltrate the healthcare industry. Um, pros and cons to that, people for and against it. Um, and people want, you know, the healthcare industry to be more efficient, more cost-effective. You know, what business wouldn't want that? For their bottom line, and the healthcare industry really isn't any different. So, back um, in 1962, the auto industry started replacing human employees with robots. And since 1980, basically, we've had a new robot enter the marketplace every month. So, this is not new. So, ro- robots entering uh, healthcare and influencing maybe life and death. Uh, Situations. Well, that's an area that some people have a concern with. So healthcare is moving possibly in that direction to use more robot machines. And basically they want to eventually replace 80% of what doctors, surgeons, anesthesiologists, and dentists, what they do. So we're going to take a look at robots. Uh, you know, and I, I got to ask the question: Who who said let's take a robot off the assembly line, and put him in the exam room or the OR? What brainiac <laughs> said that? Right? <laughs> well, know, um, yeah. Well, you know, when you think about robots doing surgeries, uh huh. You know, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not going to be around. <laughs> well, you know, can a robot think on his feet? or pads or whatever he's standing on. But uh, Fortune magazine actually did a story on the future of healthcare and what it might look like. And um, they're convinced, though, that technology will improve healthcare and all the experiences patients have. Uh, it's going to make the jobs of physicians better. That's what they think. Uh, and they, they, quote, they have this quote. They said, healthcare today is often really the practice of medicine rather than the science of medicine. So they want to see, you know, data science kind of take over medicine. Now, according to their report, the University of Miami did this study, Melanie, in 2005, where they withheld aspirin or ibuprofen from a group of patients when they developed a fever. So under the experiment, the group that did not get these types of drugs when a fever began had more successful recoveries and fewer deaths than the patients that were given the drugs. So the trial was actually stopped by the team leaders who felt that it was now unethical to allow patients to receive the standard treatment, you know, give them aspirin for a fever. So will program robots make such a call? Ask yourself that. Now, experts in favor of more automation really don't have a problem with robots making decisions because they're going to be outfitted with artificial intelligence, and that should cover any program issue. What do you think of that? Well, you know, there's more and more of these uh, folks that are coming out and saying, you know, this artificial intelligence, people should be, you know, very frightened of it, that it is the end of, you know, um, you know, it's really the end. It's, it's something they believe that in 100 years these mm-hmm. robots will be, you know, they will overtake. We yeah, they'll run have... the world. Yeah, our, us, our, our little carbon units, that's what they often refer to us in sci-fi. We're carbon units. We're nothing. Yeah, we're nothing. <laughs> but and, but well, we already know that China is out there buying up all types of robots right? uh, to place in their factories. And, uh, sure. you know, they have no problems replacing people 
Uh, they have no. no problems with people dying because they can't eat and they starve. There's certainly not a humanitarian type uh, um, country, so it's. I know, but but the thing is, you know, let's say you're you're you, you're in an accident, God forbid, and you you got a trauma issue, and, and you're just whisked to the hospital, probably via a drone, and there you are in the emergency room, and instead of a human face leaning over you, it's a machine, right? So I don't know what's worse, a robot that's programmed to follow instructions, standard of care, or one that can arbitrarily decide to change procedure. Think about it. Well, <laughs> yeah, she's speechless, I think. No, I really am. I'm still back on the taking the ride to the hospital on the drone. Oh, hey. Oh. Now, who do, patients, who do patients sue when a machine is taken yeah. care of? The manufacturer, the the, the, the robot. <laughs> well, um, well, the thing is, is they're saying let's get machines because human error is part of the problem in practicing medicines. People are concerned with things like um, sleep deprivation of doctors, drug dependency of doctors, ethics, morals, all part of the human condition. And they're saying, well, none of that's going to influence RoboDoc over here. So, well, here's the basic concept I think people miss. You can't have something that's created without having a creator, and the creator influences the created right? So do you remember that movie uh, Starman with Jeff Bridges? It was a 1984 movie. He played mm -hmm. an alien, okay? He came down to Earth, and he learned to drive a car by watching humans, okay? And he was driving actress Karen Allen in this one scene in the movie, and he ran a yellow light, and uh, Karen called him out on it. But he replied, no, I watched you very carefully. Green light, go. Red light, stop. Yellow light, go very, very fast. Okay? <laughs> so they're going to be programmed to, you know, do what humans do, make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So human error, they say, costs too many lives. Misdiagnosis is the primary argument. But mach machines are going to have their own obstacles. Think about this. Are, are they going to be able to deal with patients that lie to them? or can't remember facts, so they're going to be able to pick up on those subtleties, right? Do, do, do doctors really do now? <laughs> I mean, you're yeah. in and out of their offices so much, so, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you kind of miss that. And, and I think, too, someone mentioned to me the other day, they says, well, you know, you used to have a lot of compassion from the people. You know, if you went into the healthcare industry, you wanted to help people. Nurses mm -hmm. became nurses because they wanted to help people. They wanted mm -hmm. to uh, be there. And now, because there's lack of jobs in other industries, you have people getting into this healthcare area just for the job they right. they they have no you know they they don't want to help people they just want to show up for a paycheck so yeah you're 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 right about that but here's the thing we we also want to focus on in this um science data driven medical industry we're going to have um they're going to program the robots to overhaul treatment and the machines are going to pick up on a whopping 80% of your current doctor obligations so they're going to be doing diagnoses, tests, return office visits, writing prescriptions, and assessing patient behavior. So essentially the robots will take over the initial contact with patients and formalize a treatment plan for them. So we're told this will cut down on errors and overhead. 
But that just describes basically what your general practitioner now does, right? So they're calling, experts are calling this rebalancing our health care, and they predict the robots will be bringing almost an immediate 50% improvement overall to the health care system. But if doctors are replaced by machines, so will our ends, uh, other lab technicians, and so on. So what all this means is this data science technology contribution to medicine will take over triage, diagnosis, and decision-making parts of your treatment, which means we're going to need fewer doctors. And if we don't, and you know, a robot's not going to sit in class and cram for exams. So this is going to impact medical school, mm-hmm. right? And here's the other thing: if we got it, if we got this, you know, developing intelligence, artificial intelligence, who is going to be eventually superior to us, carbon human units. Um, doctors, humans won't be able to care for themselves anymore. They won't be able to become doctors. I don't well, know. I just see. I just see it could go very, very wrong. Let me read you this quote. If we got a minute, I want to read you this quote by um, Greg Fairhair. He's a medical consultant. He says this about this. He says logic has the potential to make healthcare better, but only if resulting interpretations are applied by caring doctors and ones available in sufficient numbers to meet with and be part of the patient life. So if medical practices are reduced to algorithms, five-year survival rates, which would dictate treatment producing medical practice uh, ceiling plans, he says the concept of fighting on, breaking the odds, faith, hope, and prayer would be vanquished from medicine, and the human race, he said, would be much poorer for it. End of quote. Huh. Yeah. All right. Well, well, you know, I think one of the things that disturbs me most in, in any area of business that I try to do is people are, they only relate any service center or anything like that, they relate to the computer. If the computer doesn't uh, say it, they don't know the answer. Uh, they don't think. They don't use judgment. Um, yep. And it is just there. They they, they can't adjust and, and make decisions. And this is kind of where this robot seems to be coming in. It's mm-hmm. going to be that, and uh, certainly no thought, no judgment, no. Um, it will be a very bizarre world in which. Well, it is. But I'm I'm just saying. Okay, because a lot of uh, successful medical treatments we had today came about through trial and error. Mm-hmm. And if, 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 if data science is going to get rid of that, you know, I doubt robots are going to be capable of, you know, deciding on trying something just based on a hunch, you know. And sometimes that's when miracles happen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are other areas that we do have computers. Of course, you understand uh, autopilots and aircrafts, stock exchange algorithmic trading, uh, and now Google's self-driving car. You know, I, I just want to ask the people, what are you guys going to accept out there? What are you going to allow the future to be? Because choices today will determine what generations to come are going to be held to. See? Unfortunately, those listening to the program, you know, agree with us, but yet all those young folks, all these kids, they love growing, they're growing yeah. up in this world or being conditioned to love it. 
And yep. they don't they they can't see the big picture. They don't see the future. There's such a big disconnect uh from any older generation to these young kids anymore. So, um I personally you know. like to take a break from technology from time to time. I like it. Absolutely. <laughs> I I say to people, prescriptions can weaken the system, so look for foods and herbs that can strengthen the system. If they want to learn more, we can send them a free product catalog, and our number is toll-free at 866-229-3663, 866-229-3663, or they can visit us on the website at thepowerherbs.com. Thank you, Wendy. We'll be talking to you next Wednesday. You'll be back on next Wednesday. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Alfred and James Corbett will be joining you here in the just in the next few minutes right after these short breaks. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Are you concerned about prescription drug dependency to stay healthy? Are you worried that the cost and availability of your medications may put your health at risk? Perhaps it's time you consider a natural, safe, and effective way to deal with your health problems. If only you knew where to start. 
start right here. Tune in to Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless. I'm Alfred Addisk here on Financial Survival Programs brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver, 1-800-375-4188. Our guest is James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. James, is uh, he lives in Japan, been there for 10 years or more. And uh, if you're interested in an intellectual perspective on what's happening in the world, Visit the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. James, how are you doing? Well, to be honest, I'm always a little bit nervous coming on with you, Alfred, because I never know what direction you're going you're gonna to take this week. So I'm always trying to, <laughs> to bone up on and study every possible story you might bring up, and I always get it wrong. So no, I'm, I'm always excited to see what you're going to talk about. I think you're prepared for all of this. I uh, think you've probably... I'm not sure if you've had a computer grafted into your brain or an internet connection <laughs> or something like that, but I know it, I am hard pressed to find a subject to talk about where I can expect you to be completely lost and say, "What the heck is he talking about?" I've got one here from uh, I've got one here from the what is this China Daily Mail? Uh, let me just scroll up at the top. Take a look here. Yeah, China Daily Mail. And the headline is, China changes its strategy towards Japan. Unrelenting pressure has produced far greater costs than benefits for China. Does that sound like a accurate description of what's happening with China policy to Japan? And what do you think about China in general? They're building islands or in the South China Sea, if I understand correctly, that they intend to 1,000 miles offshore. I don't know if it's that far, but certainly several hundred miles offshore. They're building an, building islands in the ocean that they will claim for themselves. What's happening with China right now? You are correct about that. Uh, what was the, uh, the, the, the quote from that? Well, article? the headline is, China changes its strategy toward Japan. Unrelenting pressure has produced far greater costs than benefits for China. Hmm. Are they easing up on Japan right now? Do you perceive that or hear it? And uh... Uh, well, I, w- I would say there's been certainly a, a bit of a, a détente uh, from 2012 or thereabouts, where we saw mm-hmm. the the real heating up over the island disputes in the East China Sea, the Senkaku Islands, as they're called in Japan. Yep. Um, there was obviously a, a, a lot of pressure building up over that, and we saw some big protests, some anti-Japanese protests in China, some uh, some nationalist sentiments here in Japan. So we saw a lot of that being whipped up at the time, and I think that was perhaps related to uh, Xi Jinping being relatively new in power at the time and trying to establish his 
his sort of uh, his his authority and his control over the people. But the best way to do that is always to direct them at a bo- boogeyman. And then on the other side, you had uh, Abe was campaigning at that time, and uh, his his base is really that nationalist uh, uh, base in in Japan. So I think they were both playing to political crowds, and I think that might have been part of the reason why it seemed to be fanning, the flames were being fanned at that time, and perhaps part of the reason why that's been backed off since then. I think uh, there's still, of course, there's regular stories about Japan scrambling jets to to, uh, to deal with Chinese fighter jets that are straying into their space, and all that sort of thing still continues to happen, but it's not really the pressing issue that it was back a, a few years ago, and it's not being trumpeted and, and played out in the media quite as much. So I think there's been uh, a backing off. Um, and I, I place it more within that political context, although I, I'm sure there are probably other reasons for that as well. Well, here's one of the reasons. The article says Japan's direct investment in China fell by 38.8% year-on-year in 2014 to $4.33 billion. So Japan had been investing in China, presumably trying to make ties that would make it make military conflict improbable and something they wouldn't people wouldn't want to get into. I'm I'm guessing, but I I would you know, do you think that's a reasonable guess? Yes. Well, there may even just be straight economic reasons for okay. not wanting to invest in China at this time. Obviously, there has been that slowdown um, in the export-heavy economy of China as it tries to struggle to perhaps make a transition to more of a domestic-based economy. So it is, I think, uh, a less attractive investment than it has been over the past 15 years. So there, there, I think there may just be straight economic reasons for not wanting to to put so much capital into China at this time, and that's exacerbated by those kind of political tensions mm-hmm. that we know But they are... might be misinterpreted to be a result of the political tensions mm. rather than the fact that Japan is short on cash. It, exactly right. Yep. Yeah. All right, I got another one here from the... Here's uh, what's this World Politics Journal. The European Central Bank's asset purchases program helps to end the Eurozone's four-month spell of deflation. I'm just interested in whether you think the ECB, the uh, the European Central Bank, is actually have they paid in enough money, injected enough money into the European economy to end deflation, and do you see the economies of the globe tending more for deflation, or are we going back to inflation? What do you think is more likely? Well, there is, as we've talked about before, there is definitely a deflationary undertow right now. As yeah. um, and and obviously, what the past five years or so has been about is this attempt to inflate uh, the bubble faster than it's deflating, and so we've seen unprecedented, literally world historically unprecedented amounts of money being created through all of these unconventional monetary tools by various central banks. And in fact, China looks like it's going to be the next to to engage in this as as we say, it's export driven economies being uh, being hurt right now by the fact that they haven't been able to devalue the, the yuan in the same way that Japan has devalued the yen and uh, the euro has been devalued and the U.S. dollar has been attempted to be devalued. So now apparently China is going to start either engaging in some quantitative easing or engaging in basically a type of uh, bond 
um, collateral deal with with some of the banks that are that may or may not buy some municipal bonds that are being issued to to basically try to alleviate some of the debt burden that China is getting into. Um, all of which is very fascinating. The question, of course, is the ECB's actions and their QE program that's that's just uh, kicked off. Is this really going to be what gets the eurozone out of its deflationary cycle? Uh, I uh, remain incredulous. I think that it may have that cosmetic effect and it may it may have a real effect on the markets per se in in the coming year or two but i think it's going to be exactly uh, a similar situation to the federal reserve's qe program which of course is the one that that is the the example that they're all following the, the playbook that they're all reading from and in that example we did have the uh, the federal reserve of course stepping in with its trillions and trillions that it created and uh, used to buy bonds and mortgage backed securities and other things and that did have an effect of at least preventing the uh, the great deflationary cycle from all the deleveraging that was going on so but, far exactly but of course now that they've at least taken their their foot off the gas pedal as we've talked about with the uh, the ending of the QE program and uh, are now actually apparently going to put it on the uh, um, uh, on the break with the the inflation rate adjustment that supposedly is going to come this year i think we're going to see the the ultimate failure of the QE program because at the end of the day uh, uh, all the all of this all of these central bank tricks are are really just ways of trying to get people convinced that the the environment is safe enough to start spending and investing capital again and i don't think any amount of central european central bank trick is going to convince the european public of that when they see and they feel the reality of what's happened over the past several years on the ground each and every day we still have ridiculous amounts of unemployment amongst the youth especially there in the southern european so-called pigs countries we still have the the fiasco of greece continuing to unfold and the latest of course was that the uh greece was allowed to use some of their reserve holdings as a payment against their imf uh, their imf payment <laughs> which they, they will now have to replace it. right now they don't have any more exactly well they have to replace that back into their reserve holdings uh, one month from now so all they've done is kick that down the road another month and this will continue to play out i my prediction would be that there will not be a greek exit from the eurozone anytime in the foreseeable future not because of economic reasons i mean it should have happened they never should have been allowed in in the first place even by the uh, eurozone's own rules but i don't think it'll happen for economic reasons i think it won't happen because of the geopolitical reasons and uh, uh, dr mark faber of uh, the gloom boom and doom report put this very well recently in an interview where he was talking about how the fact that basically Europe and NATO specifically needs Greece as the bulwark against the, the so-called Russian threat. And they're not going to let them get out of the Eurozone sphere of influence um, at all. It's just not going to happen. And I tend to agree with that. I just don't think they're going to allow it. So they'll, they'll do whatever tr tricks and chicanery. But uh, still, people, especially in Greece, obviously see through that. There's no, there's no fundamental confidence that's being restored in the markets. All that people are doing is seeing that, oh, they're going to paper over this problem. And uh, I don't think that's the fundamental basis for the the, the real kicking off of true economic growth again. So I, I, there are cosmetic effects. There are sort of effects that happen simply from the, the printing of the paper, but I don't think it's a lasting effect. And uh, as soon as they stop with their, you know, funny money from heaven, it's going to be exactly like in the U.S. situation. And if I understand correctly, Greece has 
dipped into it's an emergency fund to pay off $780 million or thereabouts just in the last day or so. And that essentially, according to some reports, has left them basically penniless. They may be able to collect more money as time goes on. I, you know, they can collect more taxes. But it's interesting to me to compare $780 million, if I understand correctly, paid off in the last week, last few days, maybe just like yesterday, I don't know. But versus the total size of the remaining size of the Greek debt is about $330 billion. Now they're having all they can do to pay off $780 million. That's like a third of a percent, less than a third of a percent of their total debt. And it just tells us whatever, it tells me at least, that whatever is going to happen in Greece, there's just no way they're going to pay that debt. Um, they may remember, remain a part, they may never get to a Brexit, they may, be, they may remain part of the European Union from now until, you know, hell freezes over. But they're not going to pay that debt, or at least that's the way it appears to me. Do you disagree? Uh, I don't see a way of it mathematically occurring uh, anytime in in the foreseeable future. I don't see how they're even going to continue to meet their payments. I think it's going to have to be restructured. And I, I don't think that's going to be a dramatic default, because that would be the type of thing that would potentially kick off some sort of political crisis in the Eurozone that can't really be papered over in the same way. So I think they're going to have to reach some sort of agreement, but that agreement, however it comes and in whatever form, will undoubtedly um, just cement and, and, and further ensconce the, the, the banksters' chains around the neck of the Greek people. And again, of course, all of this is in service to the, the kleptocrats in, in the Greek government who were busy plundering off the, uh, the wealth of the country for a very long time and manipulating it into the Eurozone in the first place with the help of Goldman Sachs and all those manipulations and deceptions that took place. It has nothing to do with the, uh, the Greek people themselves, but they're the ones who are left holding the bag and they're the ones that are going to pay for this. And uh, unless are they there's really some sort of political revolution, it, nothing's going to happen. Are they really going to pay for it? And what I mean by that is this. I'm reminded of Iceland. Smaller, it's a tiny little country. It's more like a one city <laughs> rather than a whole country. But just the same, there is a, there's an interesting principle. They were caught in a similar bind. They owed too much money, and they just told the creditors, too bad. <clears throat> we're not paying. And they went through two years, difficult times. They were back on their feet after about two years of just refusing to pay the debt. And now they are one of the more prosperous economies that are associated with Europe, um, they're doing fine. I can't help wondering what would happen if Greece just said, that's it, we quit. We're not paying. We don't need any deal. We will suffer through 18, 24 months of this, and creditors will say, why don't we lend to Greece? They don't have any debt. Once they wipe out all of the debt they have right now, they become a, a pretty good candidate for borrowing. Now, it'd be high rates and whatever, but I'm wondering, would Greece do better to just say to heck with it, we're done with this, we're not going to try paying it, sorry about that, but we don't have the money and uh, we can't pay, so we won't pay, and let's all get on with our lives. Will Greece collapse into a decade-long depression, or do you think they could 
have a couple of bad years and get back on their feet. Well, it is a different situation than Iceland, which for all of the seeming similarities was a different situation insofar as the creditors that they supposedly owed their onerous debt to was uh, where there was no real enforcement mechanism in the same way that we have the direct ties of Greece into the Eurozone, into the IMF, to the uh, the people sitting at the table with them. So I think there's more of a direct uh, uh, sort of leverage that, that they have over Greece right now, simply because they're part of these institutions and they've been involved in this process. I think repudiation of the, the debt as an as an onerous debt, as a debt that, that an odious debt, I should say, it should happen. I think that's the only the only real quote unquote solution to this problem. It's not it's not even a happy solution in itself because it will lead to pain for the Greek people hmm. and it would lead to the Greek exit from the Eurozone, which would require well, it wouldn't require, but it would un, uh, undoubtedly lead to the, the creation of uh, the the recreation of the drachma. And that would be backed up by bonds issued by the Greek government. And, and there would be vulture, vulture funds that would come in to, to buy up those bonds they won't at be, They won't be rates. doing them a favor. They will be, yeah. they'll pay a high rate of interest, but just the same. They'd be able to get loans after they wiped out the existing I think, debt. I think they would, but I think it yeah. would only be the, the sort of vultures that would be buying them. And, uh, yes, the, the rates they would be extracting would be exorbitant. It would be a lot of pain for the country. There's no doubt. I mean, there's no there's no happy ending to that. Well, that's going to happen one way or the other. Exactly. That's exactly They're going to go right. through pain, and the only question is how long is it going to last? How, de- how deep is the will of what is the magnitude of the pain, and what is the duration? Those are the two questions, I suppose. Let's take a break for some commercials. I'm Alfred Addis here with James Corbett from thecorbettreport.com. We'll be back in a moment. Stay tuned. mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with Salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. 
4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Hi, folks. I'm Alfred Adisk here with James Corbett from the Corbett Report on Financial Survival. And James said he was a little bit concerned sometimes about the questions I might ask. I've got one here that you may not want to answer. And I can understand that, and I don't object. If you'd rather just duck this question, that's fine. But here's an article from Newsmax, and it says, Americans living abroad set record for giving up citizenship. Now, you've lived in Japan for at least 10 years, if I understand correctly. That is correct. It's, it's none of my business as to whether you have yourself expatriated or if you've considered it or you've rejected the idea. And if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine with me. I'm not really interested in this. I, I mean, it's maybe interesting if you want to respond to it. But I'm interested. You're sitting out there. You must know other American expatriates. What do you think about the idea of expatriation? Well, I, I am perfectly happy to talk about it in my own case. I am uh, officially a Canadian citizen. At least that's what it says on my passport. So there okay. you go. Um, and I haven't given up my Canadian citizenship because uh, Japanese citizenship is not easy to come by. No, <laughs> I if understand. I were interested in it. So. Yeah. But yes. Um, but there. I thought you were a native of the United States. I thought you were a native. I am US not. Man. I am Canadian. I'm sorry. Uh, that was my mistake then. All right. A loyal subject of the Queen at the end of the All day, right. or so she would like to believe. But. Uh, this is uh, interesting because the American example is particularly uh, egregious with the IRS claiming uh, that it has the right to, to claim uh, a portion of your income anywhere in the world earned, yep. you know, no matter where you're resident, which, mm -hmm. is, which is quite unique. There aren't a lot of countries that do that. And Canada and Japan have reciprocal tax arrangements so that you can't double pay, basically. You're not double taxed. So, uh, so it, it, the IRS is particularly unusual like that, and certainly I know a lot of Americans over here that have to deal with that, and uh, the, uh, some people have been quite frustrated by the fact that they're expected to pay tax uh, twice, basically. Um, so I, I certainly understand that, and it's interesting. I've been watching this for several years now, and it seems, I, I think, every single year since 2009 or 2010, I've seen a story come out say this is the year more, more Americans gave up their citizenship than any yeah. year previous, and it seems every single year that's, that's happening. So there is a, a growing trend toward that, and I certainly understand it, because as I say, the IRS uh, is really it has its claws everywhere, and is working and has been working for some time to construct behind the scenes a web that makes it impossible for um, anyone to, to really evade the clutches of the IRS, as people have done in the past. And even the, the, the coveted Swiss banking secrecy and all of that has been undermined in recent years by agreements that basically mean that the IRS even has its, uh, its, its eyes and ears in Switzerland now in the Swiss bank's uh, banking system. And this is all being formalized now in the OECD rules that, or the, the the OECD is trying to put something together to to make this kind of international web. Of course, 
the idea is to catch these corporate tax evaders like the Apples and Microsofts or whatever, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But, uh, oh, oh, just happens to be, by the way, yes, we can also peer into your personal bank account and get all your personal banking details anywhere in the world. So uh, I understand why more people are doing this than ever before, but it's, it's still, I mean, a fairly drastic measure for a lot of people. And interestingly, some people have some problems with this process. People might may or may not have heard of Roger Veer. I've had him on uh, the Corbett Report before. Uh, basically, he's a, a Bitcoin proponent, and he's uh, he lives out in Japan and has for a number of years. I'm not sure how long, but he was uh, originally American. Uh, he gave up his citizenship and his passport, I believe, last year, and uh, replaced it with a uh, Saint Kitts passport, I believe. Okay. Um, and and so he was attempting to go uh, travel to the United States for a Bitcoin conference. Uh, and he was denied a visa to enter the United States because, uh, well, I mean, the story is actually quite ridiculous. And he, they were they were claiming he didn't have proof of, uh, of residence in the place that he, he has a passport or whatever. And they literally wouldn't physically accept his proof. He was trying to hand it to them and they wouldn't accept it. It was a crazy story, but that's just one story among the uh, thousands and thousands of people now that are uh, in similar situations, giving up their, their U.S. citizenship to deal with the, the, the ridiculous taxation issues. And uh, I think this is only going to increase from, from here on in. You know, this you raise an interesting point. I've listened to people talk about American citizens are taxed anywhere in the world. All right, and there and that is one of the primary motives that's causing them to relinquish their U.S. citizenship so they can live in Costa Rica, for example, and not be taxed by the government of the United States as well as the government of Costa Rica. That's all they're looking for. They're not just talking about dodging taxes or paying no taxes. They're saying, look, I don't want to pay taxes in two places. But that's the only way I've looked at this in the past. But what you're saying is that and bringing to my attention, and thought about it before, it's not just about the individuals. It's about the corporations that are allegedly locating their headquarters, their their finances, whatever, overseas. Multinational corporations, really, but if they are originally incorporated in the United States, are they also subject to being taxed by the United States government, even though they're located in Japan, for example? Well, that's a very good question, and I think it just depends on how good your uh, accountants and lawyers are. And obviously, the big corporations have the best in the world, so they know how mm-hmm. to do that, how to play this game. Um, if you have, I mean, I, I'm not going to get into the, the particularities of this because I certainly don't deal with this corporate tax accounting. But my understanding is, if you have these various branches in different countries, uh, what what of that is actually created or is is income that's generated by the 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 US based corporation and what isn't depends on where you keep the money and how it's moved between the various branches and things of that sort so that you can have uh like some corporations that get a lot of publicity obviously in the states you can have these massive corporations that basically don't pay any taxes on on any of their foreign earned uh revenue because it's all part of these foreign subsidiaries and, and what have you. And again, I think it's really just a question of having accountants and lawyers and, and uh, that know how to play the game effectively and probably have gre- greased the skids with the right payoffs to the right uh, officials uh, that go along the way. So that's why I think the OECD initiative is 
uh, is disingenuous to say the least. I mean, I'm sure there will be some corporations that end up, you know, getting at least uh, wrist slapped through all of this and having to pay more in taxes. But I think my my understanding of this is that this goes more towards the individual um, because I think that the the ultimate point of this is the creation of the global chat tax framework, without which you couldn't even possibly imagine having anything resembling some sort of global governmental structure. You need to have the framework to be able to track everyone's finances everywhere in the world and to have this sharing of information between governments. That has to be the real groundwork, the the cornerstone of anything that would resemble a a global governmental entity. And can you imagine, I mean, from that cornerstone, you can build all sorts of things. I mean, imagine if they bring in some sort of, you know, the, 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 the United Nations carbon tax or whatever. Again, that, that sort of thing cannot be built unless you have that, that cornerstone laid of having the, the sort of global tax framework. And so I think that's really what this OECD initiative is about. I think that's what the IRS is trying to do with its Foreign Bank Secrecy Act and all of these other legislation that's being passed to basically make everything as transparent as possible to the government. When we talk about the New World Order and global government, you know, it's a subject that everybody, a lot of people talk about. But who points to the source of it? Where does the New World Order, where is it headquartered right this moment? And where, what is the foundation for it? Which nation or nations are really pushing for the New World Order? And where I'm going with this is the United States the central force behind the New World Order? Uh, I, that's a difficult question to answer, because what do you mean by United States? I, I got an award for no. that one. I got an award for that one. I got a... Uh, uh, all right, now, that time, I actually did uh, you know, stump you a little bit on that question. What I'm going well, for I'm is the IRS... We would think that the IRS, we, we think the IRS is trying to get taxes from Americans any place on the globe right. just because the IRS is greedy for money. Well, yeah. But is it greedy Absolutely for money no. or is it they're it trying to establish, a, build a foundation for what the New World Order yeah. will take over? Yeah. And if the IRS is ultimately working for the New World Order, where is the headquarters? Who, who, are, who are the principals well, behind the New that, World Order? That's kind of the wrong the wrong way to frame the question because it's not aware. Um, we've been trained to think that the the, the, the New World Order, the, the, the head people, whatever, are in a certain place, in a certain country, and they operate from there in that country's interests or what have you. It isn't, it isn't about that at the end of the day. It's about certain families. It's about certain bloodlines even, um, I'm sure, at the very top of this, that ultimately I really don't think they care about anyone who isn't part of their little clique, um, whether they live in the same geographical area or not. So I don't think it is a where is this located. And I wouldn't say the United States is the headquarters of this new world order. It's certainly been the driving engine for military enforcement of and, and the creation of this financial infrastructure that um, that that will lay the, the groundwork for the next stage of global government. But I don't think, again, I mean, the ultimate end of this is global. So I don't think that we can locate it in a, a particular place. It involves the collusion. And I don't mean that in a sense that these people are all 100 percent on the same page. But generally speaking, the collusion of people um, in in various structures and secret organizations and what have you in every country in the world. I mean, there are people who collaborate and collude in various forms everywhere, all over the world, and they're important in their 
different sections of the world, so that a, a Rong Yiren or whoever in China may be the most, some of the most important people in the, in the Chinese oligarchy, and they collaborate with the, the, the Kissingers and the Rockefellers in America, and they collaborate with the Rothschilds in Israel, and they collaborate with the, uh, the, the various groups and the round tables and what have you in England. And, and, and again, I don't think looking at the, trying to see the one place or the one group that is doing this is the right way of seeing it. I think it has to come about through the collusion of people in, in all of these different places. Well, the question becomes, the United, well, for me, the United States seems to be working to, to implement, engineer, cause a new world order. They seem to be a servant. The government of the United States, from my perspective, seems to be serving that objective. But if the government of the United States is not itself a prime mover, then they're a subordinate and somebody's pulling their strings and they are working for. They're not, they're not the source of the New World Order per se, but they are a very important subordinate and they're taking orders from. And it implies that our government has been captured by forces of the New World Order. And is that an exaggeration? Is it a misstatement? Or is it just something like an idea whose time has come? Is that what we're dealing with with the New World Order? Is it, is it sinister? Someone's going to force this on us? Or are we you know, finally going to see global government? You know, that's a really good question and one that I, 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 I would hope that the alt-media would be raising more, more frequently because it gets to an important part of this, uh, this whole story, which is, is there such a thing as this wonderful, amazing, you know, benevolent government that used to exist, but it's been corrupted and taken over by these, you know, the New World Order crowd? <laughs> it's always been corrupt and taken over. Exactly. I mean, it's ultimately... Been taken over or have they always been taken over? Well, the way I would see it is that the, 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 the New World Order ideology, the globalist ideology, the idea that we have to all you know, unify under this global government, which is the ultimate end of this, is just an outgrowth, is just an extension of the seeds of the kernels of the idea that were contained in and of themselves in these national governments before, before them and the, in, in previous forms of government before them. I think it's a, it is a, a growth of that idea. And so I don't think returning to you know, the old... Uh, if there was some sort of, you know, pre pre NWO government, if we could just return back to that, everything would be fine again. I don't think that's that's right. I think we have to question the, the, the legitimacy of the system itself to actually get at the root of the problem. So it's not to me, it's not the corruption of something that was once pristine. It's just the, the, the growth of an ideology that uh, that is just reaching a, a more and more elaborate form. Do you think the new world order is essentially a done deal? Is it inevitable, or are there forces at work that are perhaps going to, you know, put a stick in their spokes and they're not going to pull it off? If it was inevitable, I wouldn't be here talking to you. Um, mm -hmm. But it is certainly an uphill battle to uh, to fight against it. Um, and it may just be a question that perhaps fighting against it can can postpone it. And even that might be worth something. I don't know. But at the end of the day, I think there has to be a chance, honestly, a real chance to, to affect this. But it, it, the question becomes more, uh, more pertinent, more to the point with every passing decade, because I think we, we get to that point where we are truly technologically reaching the, the sort of levels of control that, that wouldn't have been possible, imaginable, 
half a century ago, say. I mean, we couldn't have imagined really the type of technological tyranny that could be implemented by a global government uh, 50 years ago uh, as opposed to what could be implemented today. And I think that gives a certain urgency to this problem. And especially when we start talking about technologies like the transhumanist technologies and and things that will start to to be the brain chips and what have you that again sounded like science fiction fantasy half a half a century ago but are becoming more and more uh, 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 an imminent reality at this point i think those te- types of technologies truly will decide this this match i mean if you want to look at it as sort of the people versus the the small clique who have who have been in power, who have always been in power. There's always been a small clique over top of most the most people, but there's always been this, this sort of suggestion, well, we could fight them off, we could slough them off here and there. Not only that, back. there was the suggestion that it wasn't going to happen until Flash Gordon arrived and the Emperor Ming, and that right. would be in the next century or something like that. It's turned out it's happening in our lifetimes. Yeah. We're out of time, James. I want to thank you All again right. for being on the program. I always look forward to it. And, uh, folks, thank you for tuning in. James and I will be back uh next thursday barring the unforeseen in the meantime with good lord bless you me melody frank the producer james corbett good night i work all night i work all day to pay the bills i have to pay There never seems to be a single penny left for me. That's too fast. In my dreams, I have a plan. If I got to be a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work at all. Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for one forty. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
homes being foreclosed, unemployment insurance running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes, now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to Wichita Homeless. Or simply call 316-619-4886. Welcome to the Messiah's Branch. A one-hour prophecy program on the American Voice Radio Network, featuring Pastor Dan of the Messiah's Branch Ministry. And now, here's Pastor Dan. Greetings, saints, and welcome to the Messiah's Branch Prophecy Hour. We are broadcasting live from the Flannels of Kansas, and we're on the American Voice Radio Network. Today's date is May 14, 2015. Most just do not realize that, but we are in that time of the end, and that's the time of, of, of before Messiah's glorious return. And I was just thinking, you know, um, I guess we're all still here today. The space rock didn't hit us. I mean, you know, there was a a, a mountain or about the third of the size of uh, Mount Everest that was supposed to zoom by us today. A very close call. But most people didn't know that, and that's how it would be when an asteroid does hit us. But the point is, is that we're still here. So, But it's still, folks, most people don't realize the things that are going on. So it is time to get out of sin, the world, and look to the holy city. Look to the one who suffered and died for you. Please make this choice tonight. If you need help after this program, call me. I'll pray for you or with you. If you get the machine, please leave your name, your number, your prayer request, and or message. The phone number, of course, is 620-878-4682. 620-878-4682. And in an emergency, my cell phone number is 316-619-4886. Do not hesitate to leave a message if you don't get if I don't answer those phones. Um, Leave a message, name, phone number, message, you know what I mean? Or you could always send me an email with your phone number on it, and I'll call you back. Tell me what's going on. 
if there's several different ways that you can get a hold of me because I try to be here for you. You can always find updates with the breaking news, our ministry, radio program archives, and our mailing address and our email address at our blog, which is simply prophecyhour.com. Prophecyhour.com. Of course, you probably got to put that www in front of it, but I bet you if you Google prophecyhour.com, you're going to bring up a lot of pages. Anyway, remember, we are a national satellite radio program, and I guess because we're live on the Internet and it goes to podcasts later, we are an international um, radio program. Boy, that seems awful strange to say. You know, I'm still not used to that fact that people from all over the world listen to us and they go to our blog. And, and I can tell from looking at my blog how uh, many people hit it that are, you know, translated and what countries and so on and so forth. And so it's really amazing world that we live in. It's too bad that we are in a time of the end. Did I say too bad? No, it isn't too bad. I'm really happy we're in the time of the end because that brings us closer to Yeshua's return. Anyway, our radio program archives can be found at prophecyhour.com and branch.podomatic.com. Where branch.podomatic.com, they just made, they just redid their apps for Google Play. Uh, well, you can find them on Google Play for Androids and for iPhones, and uh, they're supposed to be really good apps. You can download them for free to listen to radio or both of the websites, prophecyhour.com and branch.podomatic.com. Boy, those are long words, aren't they? Anyway, both of those are already smartphone-friendly. You don't have to download radio programs or anything. You can just hit play and listen to the programs, and it'll stream it to you if that's what you want. Well, now we'll say a prayer, and we'll bring on tonight's guest. Dear Heavenly Father, in Yeshua HaMashiach's name I pray, Father, I pray that radio tonight goes according to your will and not my will, nor a radio guest at will, Father, but please, your will, let come out tonight what you want to come out and not what we want so it glorifies you and doesn't glorify us. And please give everyone out there ears and wish to hear the truth. So please, Father, in your son's mighty name, Yeshua HaMashiach, bless this program tonight. Amen and amen. Well, tonight, Pastor Carl Gallops is back on with us. He's a best-selling author, senior pastor since 1987, I guess. Talk radio host, heard nationally and internationally, TV, radio guest commentator, former decorated Florida law enforcement officer, founder of uh, PNN, or that's P.P. Simmons News Ministry and, and Ministry Network. He's a member of the Board of Regents at the University of Mobile in Mobile, Alabama. He's written three books now, The Rabbi Who Found Messiah, the story of uh, Yisar Kaderi and his prophecies of the end time. That's a really amazing book. You should get it. And there is a, what we call a, uh, I'm calling it, and I think they are too, calling it a Kaderi revival going on over in Israel where lots of Jews are being saved because of that book. Talk about that maybe later. Anyway, his other book, which we only talked about one time on this radio program other than just mentioning it a couple times. Soon I plan to have Carl come on and we'll do a whole radio program on the book. But it's called The Magic Man in the Sky, Effectively Defending the Christian Face. Folks, this is a great coffee table book that you put on your coffee table, and that way if you know if you have unsafe friends that come over, they, it's an eye catcher, you know, and it makes them, you know, they read it and it makes them ask questions, and it's just really a truly wonderful book. If you haven't read it, you should read it. But his new book is called Final Warning, in which uh, Carl has been bringing some amazing facts forward out of this book. We talked about um, when the real the timing of the rapture is and several other things. But tonight, to talk about the end times, 
I've brought Carl on because there is some breaking news. The breaking news is concerning the Vatican, a Palestinian state, well, and there's a lot more going on. So let's just let me quit talking and welcome Carl on. Are you there with me, Pastor Carl? I am here, Pastor Dan. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, and God bless you for having me back on your program. It's always a delight to be with you, my brother. Yes, amen. I, I always enjoy having you on. You're, you're a delight. You know, you have a delightful spirit, you know, and, and you always talk about, um, I, I say good things because, like I said a while ago, I'm glad to be in the time of the end. So it's good things, good tidings, because Yeshua is coming back. But there's some bad things that got to happen first. Anyway, what do you think about this Vatican thing? Yeah, it's amazing. Well, you know, uh, WND uh, called me for an interview on that to get my thoughts. And, and one of the things that I said in that article was that as, as shocking as it is that the Pope and the Vatican would make a proclamation uh, recognizing the Palestinian state, uh, 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 even when there is no such thing yet. There are no borders. There's no government. There's no currency. There's no uh, official military. There, you know, there's no trade system enacted with other nations of the world. Yet they, they enact or they give recognition to this fictitious, imaginary Palestinian state. Well, that's shocking for a lot of reasons, and it's dangerous for several reasons that I'll be glad to talk about. But, 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 for those of us who have been following this, uh, both biblically and geopolitically, this should not have been too big of a shock in that we do know that in the last days before the return of Christ, and I'm not setting dates, and you're not either, but, but, but we know it's drawing near, perhaps in our lifetime, uh, we do know that there will be a great worldwide turning away from Israel, and Israel will be despised by the nations, and, and the nations of the world will turn their back on Israel. And, 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 and what, a, what a more uh, demonic and perfect scenario storm way for that to happen than this whole Palestinian state deal. And, and of course, a lot of prophecy experts have uh, conjectured and speculated that one day there would be some kind of a peace treaty that would be signed and eventually, of course, uh, uh, you, you, you know, walked away from and, and, and mm -hmm. turned against in, in the last day. So, so uh, you know, biblically speaking, we shouldn't be surprised. Geopolitically, we shouldn't. In that, this same pope, ever since he's been in office, he has expressed affinity for a Palestinian state before. He's very liberal theo theologically. I mean, you know, he basically yeah. said atheists can enter heaven without Jesus. Uh, uh, you know, he's, he's spoken towards uh, uh, homosexuals uh, and, and homosexual relationships in a, in a positive manner. So we know he's leftist that way, but we also know that his politics are very leftist. So, so since he's, he's spoken these kinds of things before, it shouldn't surprise us. But the bottom line, Pastor Dan, when he said this the other day, mm -hmm. I mean, this gives impetus to the anti-Semitism that's building around the world, this gives impetus for the United Nations, perhaps, to say, you know what? Even the Pope, now the Pope says, right. we should have a Palestinian state, and, 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 and we're going to declare Israel is an interloper. They are an occupier. They are the villains. Israel is a terrorist state. And, Pastor Dan, it wouldn't surprise me if our own government gets involved in rhetoric like that. They're close to it now. So, yeah, anyway, absolutely. it is an amazing turn of events right now, Pastor Dan. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and you're right, even our own government, we clearly, anybody that's, that watches the news at all can see that ever since Obama came into office, we have gotten further and further away from supporting Israel, you know what I'm saying? And, and yeah. Obama has even hinted like that he wouldn't support, uh, you know, everything that the, uh, Israel wants in the United Nations, you know, where we commonly always give them that veto power of the United States. And right. so it doesn't surprise me. It seems like it's just bringing things that much forward. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I agree. And uh, it's, see, there's a convergence of things that are happening. Here, here's the deal. If it was just the Pope saying something idiotic like that and unbiblical, you know, I, I guess we would be alarmed, but we would eventually brush it off. But here's the deal. You've got the United States of America under the leadership of Barack Obama and his cronies and, and his regime, uh, literally cursing, literally, the, the leaders of Israel and, 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 and mocking Israel and the leadership of Israel and threatening Israel and the leadership of Israel. I mean, that's, that's never happened in your or my lifetime, not, no. not like this. And, 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 and then you've got that, of course, with the rise of ISIS, which was brought about by Arab Spring, which was largely influenced by Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. They both took credit for it quite brazenly after it started cranking up, and it, and it was a politically correct thing, it appeared. Of course, that gave rise to ISIS and the complete butchery of, of, of Christians going on in the Middle East now, and more hatred towards Israel. So you've got this convergence. I mean, I could go on and on, but so with the Pope doing this, it's like piling on, and, and it's just a part of this prophetic convergence. It's, if it was just by itself, it would be alarming, but not you know, too dis right. disheartening. But right. but since it's just a piling on, since it's another part of this convergence, I think anybody who knows the Word of God and who is paying attention at all, they would have to see uh, the prophetic times in which we're living, Brother Dan. I mean, ever since you've had me right. on your show for the last several years, I've been saying, folks, we're living in prophetic times. Things are beginning to happen at lightning speed. And my goodness, in this last year, year and a half, it has really piled on. And, then, and now yeah, we have I'm, the Pope coming out making this declaration. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's like, you know, okay, oh, well, there's another, you know, and another. You know, let, let's go with this. You know, I, I do this little mail-out newsletter that I've been sending out for like, oh, gosh, um, 20 years, actually, that where I put news articles in it, you know, things pertaining to the end times. And and I used to, it used to be really hard, Carl, to get headlines that would fit in it, you know, for Bible prophecy, you know. But right. now, uh, it's like, I don't, the mag it's not big enough, you know what I mean? I could put, I, I have to fight over what I'm going to put in it because there's so much. You know, it seems like every day, all you got to do is, is just turn on the news and it's something new, something new. Um, I wanted to, I, I, if you don't mind, I have another question to ask you about something. Um, yeah. Have you heard about, um, and actually I thought you would because this is a World Net Daily article, but uh, you see this article about Obama to the schools, gender bend or lose funding? You know what? You you came in garbled. You asked me, did I see the news about Obama, and then I didn't understand yeah, the okay. rest. Okay, okay. 
Um, there's an article that I'll, I'll read the headline. It says Obama to schools, gender bend or lose funding. And it's about them uh, ordering a, the largest school district in Virginia to expand. You know, where girls, can, if they feel like they're a boy, they can go into the boys' bathroom. And if a guy feels like he's a girl, he can go into the girls' bathroom. And then I found out today that that's already implemented in some places in Texas, that uh, they're gender-neutral showers. Have you heard anything about this? You know, I have not read that article. I have not seen that article. I would uh, I, I would need to see it before I could speak intelligently to to it. However, just in general, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sitting here shocked if you're saying that Obama has actually interjected himself and in, in that issue towards a public school system. Is that what you're saying? That you think? Yeah, actually, I, I, I'll read you a paragraph. It says, okay. uh, um, let's see, it says. Uh, this is in the Virginia school system, and it says uh, it says they've threatened that if we do not, in other words, make the bathrooms neutral, that if they do not, they will pull our federal education funds, free and reduce meal money for impoverished students, and other things. And this happened in uh, Fairfax uh, County or Fairfax School District in Virginia, and they're talking about expanded general. Uh, um, yeah, they're expanding it to. Uh, after this test school, they're going to expand it to all the schools in the United States. So they're going to say, either you let all your bathrooms be gender neutral or no federal funding. And yeah. Now, who's telling them this? What is the article? Federal about? government. The federal well, government. What, what, what branch of the federal government? Okay. All right. Let me go. I've got it right. I got the whole article yeah. right. Listen, here. I'm not questioning you. I'm just, I, I, this is just a, a news to me right now. Now I've been hearing, you know, of, of these threats. Well, going the on, educators but... doesn't aren't real, the the educators aren't real specific. They just say that the U.S. Department U.S. Department of Education has told okay. school districts that transgender students are protected from discrimination under Title IV, and has recently required some school districts, including Alexandria VA, to amend their policies to include gender identity. And so it's the U.S. Department of Education. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, and and of course that's directly under under the president. Well, yeah, well, listen. Here's the thing. In just a handful of weeks, the Supreme Court may decide to do away with the entire institution of marriage. Okay. This is part of that convergence I was talking about. The radical homosexual agenda aimed at our children. I've been saying this for years, Pastor Dan, long before. This radical agenda really took root in our nation and in the legal system through the courts and court cases. I've been, I've been warning America that this was coming. I've been warning America for two decades, but particularly in the last four or five years, that this was coming, and it's aimed at our children. That's what it's about. It's about power. It's about control. It's about bringing down the church, the institution of the church. It's aimed at our children and the perversion. Uh, and, and so here we have... Uh, a, a perfect example of it, and it's coming right from the federal government. At the same time, the Supreme Court is going to decide on whether or not to uphold the institution of all of humanity society, not just the American foundation, but the foundation of, of, of all societies on the face of the earth is man, woman, husband, wife, marriage, home, family, and children. And the Supreme Court may say, no, nah, 
no, that's not important. It can be anybody. And it just and and so they're they're feeling a, a, an emboldenedness. Uh, they're 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 feeling their power right now. And so it doesn't surprise me. And and as you said, or as the article alludes, this is some kind of a test case. But you know, Pastor Dan, I, I've been telling parents for years. I listen. I came up through the public school systems. Uh, my son came through the public school systems. Our grandson, we homeschooled. Uh, things have changed so much in the last several decades. But um, I've been telling parents for years, you need to get your kids out of the government schools. Either put them in a private school, a Christian school, or homeschool. But but the government school systems are being used as indoctrination camps and social engineering camps. And here is a prime example. Well, you know, but Carl, let me ask you, you're a pastor. How do we we get to this point? Now, I'm sure you don't. Um, condone homosexuality and all, and the the things on marriage. How is it that we got to this this point? I mean, with America is supposed to be the largest portion. In fact, I just looked at another survey today. I have an article on it, but I'm not going to read it. But um, we're still like about seventy some percent proclaimed to be Christians. How does a country that is seventy some percent Christian not have a big enough voice to stop this? Is there, yeah. I mean. What's going on? Okay, well, you've asked a very good question. I think the answer is complex. I think it's multifaceted. I have my theory, but I think it's a very well-grounded theory. And uh, if I can give you the five-minute version if you'll allow me to do that. We'll do that. Okay. Well, I mean, I could give you the hour-and-a-half version, but that's no, why I offered well, you the Well, actually, time. we don't have time for an hour-and-a-half or a five-minute version. We've got about a three-minute version before uh, break. Okay. Well, I I can start it, and if you want to go further or if you have questions, uh, we can do it on the other side of the break. But the bottom line is this. Listen, the church has been asleep at the wheel for decades. Now, I'm not just condemning the whole church. The church has done a lot of good things. Uh, But there are millions of Christians that didn't even register to vote in the last several elections. And and the ones that did register, over 50% of those did not vote. And this is according to some of the latest, greatest, most reliable surveys. Millions and millions and millions of Christians are opting out of, of, of the process. And, you know, Jesus commanded us to be the salt and the light. And he said, look, if you're not going to be the salt, then it's, you're worthless. You'll be trampled under by men's feet. And that's what's happening. We're putting our light out. We're, we're, we're allowing our saltiness to, to be swallowed up by the culture around us while we sit in behind our stained glass and sing, oh, how I love Jesus. And you may love Jesus, but if you're not going to obey him, if you're not going to be the salt and the light and the ambassadors for such a time as this, um, then the, the society around you is going to rot, and it's going to be partly our fault. Now, about a hundred years ago, our nation decided we were going to teach generations of children that they're nothing more than souped-up gorillas and that there is no God. And with that teaching, Pastor Dan, came the ability to abort 60 million children. It came the ability to now have the Supreme Court thinking about uh, gay marriage. Uh, With that came the ability uh, to take God completely out of our institutions and schools, because we don't need a God. We're a chemical hodgepodge accident uh, and and a souped-up gorilla. And you take generations of children and teach them that, Pastor Dan, that's why we are where we are today. That's my three-minute answer. 
Absolutely. We'll talk a little more about it afterwards. And and I think we need to, uh, what I'd like for you to point out is, you know, or what we are really needing to point out is the fact that we are further along than people think. And I think if you talk a little bit about your book, that might help too, um, your new book. But will you tell them your website? we got to go to break. Yeah, CarlGallops.com. CarlGallops.com. C-A-R-L-G-A-L-L-U-P-S. CarlGallops.com. All right, folks, we'll be back with more with Pastor Carl in three minutes. Dan will be right back. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. An important message from Donald Trump and Americans for Limited Government. While I'm a Republican, right now some in the Republican Party are working overtime to hand more power to President Obama. These same people are turning their backs on the American workers and businesses. It's unbelievable. I learned a long time ago, a bad deal is far worse than no deal at all. And the Obama Trans-Pacific Partnership and Fast Track are a bad, bad deal. For American businesses, for workers, for taxpayers, it's a huge set of handouts for a few insiders that don't even care about our great, great America. Congress has to stand up and defeat this raw power grab. With the dismal Obama track record, why should a Republican Congress give him more power and gut the Constitution to do it? It's just crazy. Tell your congressman and senator, vote no on Fast Track. Take action at Obamatrade.com. Obamatrade.com. running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or 
Donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com or simply call 316-619-4886. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. This is Pastor Dan Catlin, and you're listening to Messiah's Man's Prophecy Hour on the American Voice Radio Network. Well, folks, please remember tonight to pray about a donation for our work with our homeless and poor from our mission church in Wichita, Kansas. <clears throat> Excuse me, I about lost my voice there. From our mission church in Wichita, Kansas. But, you know, we get so many people that come to us to help, and people ask us, well, why do you do that? You know, why do you help the poor? Um, let me read you a scripture. You know, I'll read it real quick, and I won't take too much of your time up. In James chapter 2, there's a scripture that I just really love. James chapter two fourteen. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not the things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man say, Thou hast faith, and I have work. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe in tremble. But thou wilt know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. Well, no, you can't earn your way to heaven. But works is something that comes natural. You know, we take care of the homeless and poor because it's a natural thing to do. It's just like, you know, it, uh, let me give you a work. If you say by faith that you believe that the pastor is going to be there on Sunday, and so you get up and you get in your car and you drive 10 miles and you go to church on Sunday and you go in and the pastor's there and you feel like you met the Lord that day, not because of the pastor, but because of the spirit in church, that's faith. The work was is you got up off the couch and you got dressed and you went there. So there is a work. So works are something that goes along with faith. Faith by itself, just saying, I believe, does nothing. But you are to act on your faith. If you look up the word faith, faith is actually an action word. So, you know, I can show you my faith by my works, meaning that we've been keeping this mission church open for 15 years by faith. You know, we're not rich people. We don't have a big rich congregation that pays for taking care of all these people that come to us for help. It's people like you that we believe by faith that donate, that support us, that keep this place going. And so we are the last hope for so many. And folks, we are responsible to care one for another. 
as we are our brother's keepers. All donation, no matter what size, helps. And all and the Father notices all donations that come from where? Your heart. You can donate online or by mailing a check or money order. And you can find all this information at ProfCR.com or if you just want to, call me at 620-878-4682. 620-878-4682. And we're now back with Pastor Carl Gallops, and we're talking about a lot of things. Are you there with me, Carl? I'm here, Pastor Dan. Thank you for having me today. Well, I love having you on. And, and uh, by the way, uh, old Zeb is going to be on in about, uh, not this week, of course, uh, but he's going to be on with us next week uh, to get an update on what's going on with the Kaduri revival over there in yeah. Israel. Amen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Listen, I'm so glad that you're going to have him on. Uh, I know your listeners love him, and I know you do, and he's a dear brother of mine. And In fact, we are hooked up in ministry together uh, through the PNN uh, News and Ministry Network. We do a lot. Uh, of course, the book that I wrote, The Rabbi That Found Messiah, and the movie that was made from it, he's using both of those as huge uh, uh, door-opening uh, pieces of uh of, of, of tools or information to lead Jews to Christ, uh, lead them to the Scriptures and then to Christ. Uh, that's amazing. In fact, I was on the phone with Zev today, Brother Dan. We talked for probably 45 minutes or so, and um, he was telling me of, of all of these amazing things that are happening. There was a, a, an Orthodox Jewish man just a few days ago uh, that surrendered his life to Christ as a result of, of reading and hearing about what Kaduri said, and then from there studying the scriptures and Zev spending time with him, and um, they've got uh, a, a video of it. Zev just showed me the video of this man praying and giving his life to Christ. I'm sure soon it'll be on the internet, perhaps in a uh, WND.com article. And then Zeb was telling me that even while he was out of the country, his ministry organization, during those couple of weeks he was gone, led seven Jews to Christ using the Kaduri material. And he said, Carl, we've never had anything like this happen before, not this massive and quickly. And it just continues yeah. to roll. And he's he'll tell you more about it when he's on your show, and he'll give you all the details. But I'm, oh, yeah. I'm telling you, brother, Amen. this thing called the Kaduri revival is still still rolling along. The Lord is using it in these last days. Yeah, amen. I, I listened to a, um, a couple other guys about um, them witnessing the Jews, and they explained to me about how, uh, you know, Jews really have no concept of who Yeshua is. A lot of them think that uh, Jesus Christ, well, his last name is like, you know, his parents' name are Mr. and Mrs. Christ, because they really don't understand at all who he is. And so, um, the that the Kaduri book is such a fantastic thing because he just has to walk down. It's, it's amazing how he can just walk down the street with it, and somebody noticed the book and noticed Rabbi Kaduri on it, and the next thing you know, he's talking to them about Messiah and they're getting saved. And so that's a big thing. That's a real yeah. big thing, Carl. Yeah, well, it is. And, and it was like Zev explained to me today. He said, look, you know, the Jews just want to know what the what the rabbis say. You know, they, they base their whole faith on what the rabbis tell them. They, you, you remember in the book of Jeremiah, it talks about the worthless shepherds because they were leading the people astray and the sheep just followed whatever the shepherd said. Right. Uh, well, it's still that way. I mean, the rabbis are the shepherds. And the sheep follow, and whatever the rabbis say is gold. And so when Zev is able to uh, to show these Jews in Israel that the most famous rabbi 
and Israel's history, its modern history, declares, and it's in writing, that the real Messiah is, in fact, Yeshua, Yehoshua, Jesus, the Christ. Um, it blows them away. And from there, he's able to go to the scriptures and say, um, let, you know, let me show you in the Old Testament. Not going to take you to the New Testament. Well, let's go to the Old Testament, and I'll show you the prophecies of the coming of Yeshua. I'll show you uh, the, the 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 God saying that He was going right. to have a new covenant, et cetera, et cetera. So He takes yeah. them through the Scripture. It's just it's it's amazing. It's amazing. He's yeah. really gifted Amen. and he's very bold. Well, you know, I I really wish that um, more Christians would would uh, and, there, and there's a lot of good books written on this subject that w- would go back through the Old Testament and just see what the the Old Testament really says about Messiah because he's all over it. There's so many shadow pictures and everything in there, and if they saw okay. that, it, uh, it would strengthen their faith. And, you know, it's just a wonderful thing because you don't even, I mean, why well, I love the New Testament? Of course I do. It's the gospel. We need it. We have to have it. But um, I can take the Old Testament and just testify to Yeshua with the Old Testament and prove him. You know what I mean? Right. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the key. And and uh, and, and Zev has a real anointing and a real gift. I, I'm telling you, uh, Brother Dan, I... I the way the way all of that happened for us to get hooked up is just God's story after God's story. It's just supernatural. Um, well, why don't you I, relate I, that story? It's been a while since you told it. Relate that story, how you met Zev. Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, I, I listen, I, I knew this whole story about Kaduri, and, and, and my publisher, WND Books, uh, the president of that company, Joseph Farah, called me and and asked me to call. He said, look, I had already written Magic Man in the Sky, and it had done very well, become a bestseller, and and he said, "Look, you know, you're you're a good writer, and and people listen to you. You have an audience, and you've you've done a lot of research on this Kaduri, and nobody's written a book about this, and this needs to be told." And so, I mean, I was honored that he asked me, and so I began to immerse myself in that research. Well, doing the research, I came across on the internet some videos of this guy named Zev Parat in Israel, who was witnessing to and ministering to the students of Kaduri. Um, after Kaduri's death, and a lot of these students were proclaiming that Jesus is Messiah. And I said, well, now that is amazing. So I went on Zeb's website, and I started reading his testimonies and articles and discovered that that a lot of these students were Christians or, or, or believers in Jesus as Messiah because of Kaduri's teachings, and Zev was uncovering this, but he was taking a lot of heat. And, and I discovered that Zev was raised Orthodox Jew and that all of his family, the males in his family, were rabbis right on down to his great-grandparents and that they were connected to Rabbi Kaduri. And I said, man, this is unbelievable. So I gathered up information about this and included it in my book and documented and resourced it. Now, in the meantime, I, I didn't even have a clue as to how to get a hold of Zev and I didn't really know who he was. I just read all these stories about him and watched the videos on YouTube. and So I put that in my book. Well, in the meantime, uh, it, it, this is a long story, but I'm going to make it real, real short. Uh, some people I didn't even know from Indiana called me after the book was out and going strong. They were on vacation in Key West, and they had gone into a Christian bookstore and saw the book. and. They made contact with me and said, this book is amazing. And, and they watched the movie that was made about the book. And I said, well, yes, I, you know, thank you. And, and they said, but you don't understand. We have deep connections in Israel. We've worked in Israel for years, lived in Israel for years, and we want to take the book and the movie to Israel. 
So I made arrangements for these this couple whom I had never met to do that. Well, while they were there, since they had read the book and about Zev, they looked Zev up, and they found Zev and said, look at this book, look at this movie. And Zev said, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. My wife and I have been praying that somebody would document this. He said, because I'm trying to tell Jews in Israel what Rabbi Kaduri said, and they won't believe me because the media has shut it down. So here's this. These people from America, from Indiana, who are handing him a book and a movie written by a Gentile Baptist preacher in the Bible Belt, uh, the very thing that he's been living, his family's been connected to it, they hand the resource to him, and he's just blown away because this is what he and his wife have been praying for. Now he takes it into the streets and into Jerusalem and into Haifa and into into uh, um, towns all over the area, Tel Aviv, and he begins witnessing, and Jews are starting to come to Christ left and right. Well, in the meantime, Zev made contact with me. You know, he found out how to get a hold of me, and, and we've been right. friends and brothers in the Lord ever since, and I've been shipping him books and movies, and we talk on the phone, and now he's connected to the PNN News and Ministry Network, and uh, we, we promote and print and, uh, a lot of his material and, and and produce a lot of his videos and put them all over social media, and, and so that's how it works. It's just a God story. I mean, anybody yeah, else would is. call it coincidence, but, you know, we know <laughs> that it's the miraculous hand of God. I don't believe I, I I don't believe it really in coincidences, Carl. Yeah, I believe things me. happen for a reason, and and you know there is too much. But yeah, he's doing a, a wonderful work over there, and it's an amazing you know chain of events that happened that you know brought this all about. You know, I like I say I I did uh, I ventured into the Kaduri story before I met you. Well, I had met you, but I didn't know you were involved with it. You know, I had had a brought it up because that that one fellow I wrote about it in his book, Chris, uh, I think it's Chris Putnam, I think his name was, yeah, but anyway, uh-huh. and uh, I had him on, and then it upset this other fellow, and and uh, I ended up having them both on the air, and that was quite a program, but, uh, and then then I had you on afterwards, but yeah, it's, it's quite a story, but it's important for a reason. Now, maybe it wouldn't have been quite as important 20 years ago, because, you know, I it's not the same time, but the time that we're living in right now, it's another one of those puzzle pieces that you were talking about early, earlier, how everything's fitting together. And one of them, like I told Zev, I said, one of the biggest signs that I have been looking for that would convince me that I know for sure that we're living in a time of the end would be when Jews, Orthodox Jews, started turning to Messiah and accepting that Savior. And yeah. so, absolutely, I think that's a great sign. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, and and I'm so humbled and honored to be a small part of it, and and you and I are a part of it together, and with Zev and with many others, and and it's just it's so exciting. And and, and I gave you the four or five minute version, but literally there are stories that's con- that's connected to what I just said that that are just mind blowing. I mean, so miraculous, and 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 right up against the wall of things shouldn't have happened, but they did after people prayed through them and. It's, it's just amazing. I know within my heart that God's hand is all over this. And so you got an Orthodox Jew from Israel who's persecuted every day because of his love for Christ, and you've got a Gentile Baptist pastor on the Gulf Coast who's in the media, TV and radio, and all over the Internet proclaiming the truths of God, and I'm persecuted daily. And, and I'm not crying, oh, me. I mean, you are too, and we take a lot of heat for what we do. 
and and God puts together this Orthodox rabbi in Israel and this Gentile Baptist preacher on the Gulf Coast miraculously, and and now and now connected to you and and others in the media, and and the Jews are being saved. I mean, it's just it's just amazing, and 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 I see the hand of God all over it. Well, and it goes back um, to you know it couldn't have happened. Um, in another time than this time, because the, like I was going at the personal program, you know, I said, well, I guess we're an international, you know, I used to say for years, you know, we're a national radio program, but, you know, we've always been simulcast on the net, but without really, really snapping to it, that, you know, we're being heard all over the world, just as your radio uh, program is, you're heard all over the world. And we're able to interconnect, because look at all the miles and difference between you and Zev, but yet you're able to interconnect with each other and, you know, do all these wonderful things, and Jews are being saved over it. And so that's yeah. miraculous. That's miraculous. Yes. Yeah. No, it really, really is. It's absolutely amazing. And, uh, and again, I give the Lord of glory all praise for it. I'm just humbled to be to be used as a tool, and that's all I am. I mean, and I can tell you, I think I've said this on your show before, when I wrote the book, I mean, I really, when I was asked to write the book, I, I told the publishers, and you would think that I would have just said, okay, yeah, thanks. No, no. I told them, I said, listen, I'm going to have to pray about this, because I knew the, I knew the story. I knew how controversial it would be and how controversial it was. I knew that the Israeli and the American media had covered it up. They had buried it, and there's a reason for that, because, you know, they, Satan knew this was what what's happening was going to happen. Yeah, and absolutely. I knew I would be putting myself out there by writing this. I knew that Orthodox Jews around the world would hate me, and and I, I, I knew that Satan would launch against me. So my wife and I prayed about it, and, but we finally just had this 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 overpowering understanding that that uh, that we were supposed to do this. So I immersed myself in it, and right when it was getting ready to go to to publication, my wife and I prayed. I had both of us had this overwhelming feeling that somehow this book was going to make it into Israel and Jews were going to be saved. Now that's weird because that that would be impossible otherwise. Without the hand of God, that would be impossible. Right. But 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 we started praying and said, Lord, you know, if that's how you're going to use it, then then so let it be. And I'm telling you what, we released that book and all hell came against me. And for 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 weeks and weeks, I just got inundated. I mean, I, I got almost almost discouraged about it, Pastor Dan. Just yeah. the the Orthodox Jewish community people calling me an idiot, a liar, uh, that I had just made everything up, that I had blasphemed the name of their most beloved Jew uh, 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 rabbi. But then, before you knew it. It really began to catch on. People understood it. People were getting it all over the world. Then, of course, Zev got connected, and he told me, he said, oh, no, Carl, everything you've written, he said, is absolutely correct. He said, I've read your book from beginning to end. He said, I'm living it. I know these people. I know Kaduri. My great-granddaddy and Kaduri were best friends. And he says, and I know... I know there's the students, and I'm listening to their testimonies. He said, everything you wrote in this book is absolutely true and accurate. He says, it's uncanny how accurate it is. It's, he says, it's as though you were here. And I said, well, that's got to be the Holy Spirit, <laughs> because I wasn't yeah. there. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just researched it. And so anyway, as I said, I could talk about this all day, because it's just covered in the supernatural. Yeah. Amen. You know, I... Uh, 
it was just pointed out to me by uh, Frank, our producer over at American Voice Radio. He said, go look at the globe that, at the bottom of the page, uh, and it, uh, it lights up, you know, when people connect or whatever. And you'd believe all the red dots all over the world that are listening to us. You know, yeah. so it's really pretty amazing. It's really amazing. And so I want to tell now tell the people where they can get the book and the name of the video. And I and you've got to have about four minutes left. And I'd like for you to put a plug in. I, here I go. Plug in a book. I want you to put a plug in real quick for um, the final warning. Because okay. I, I want people to get that book also. Yeah, well, thank you. you. You're very kind. And and you and I both, our hearts are right in this. We're not, as you said, we're, we're not trying to plug books, but, but that's a word we use to just say tell people about it so they'll know about it. And, and it, because the thing is, you and I believe we're living in the last days, and what we're trying to do is get the word out. And people say, well, yeah, why don't you just write a, write a book and give it away? Oh, I wish I could. And I do give away thousands of dollars of books. Of books, but but you know I'm with a major publisher, and and it's only because I'm with a major publisher that that I get on major international television and radio. Do you think an international television uh, uh, mogul would have me on a show if it wasn't published by a major publisher? So Probably that costs money. Yeah, and it costs money, and the publishers have to pay their employees. And so, so no, it's not. I'm not getting rich. It's not a business. Uh, books are going all over the world. Yes, they're bestsellers, uh, but we sink thousands and thousands of dollars into. I mean, you can ask Zev. The books and movies that I we've sent over there, uh, we've sent them over there at our expense. Uh, I don't charge him a thing. We send them over by the box loads, and you know, shipping is astronomical. Right. But anyway, so yeah, it's the Rabbi Who Found Messiah. You can get it at Amazon, of course, but any place where good books are sold. The movie is named the same thing. It's a 60-minute documentary by WND Films. George Escobar, an award-winning producer, he produced it. It's called The Rabbi Who Found Messiah, and. Um, uh, that's the book, the story of Yitzhak Kaduri and the movie. Of course, you can find out, you know, everything about me and all the books and where to order everything at carlgallops.com, carlgallops.com. And my latest book, uh, actually, I have another one coming out this fall. It's called Be Thou Prepared, um, uh, Equipping really? the Church for Times of Persecution. Yeah. It's called Equipping the Church for Times of Persecution and, and, and Times of Trouble. Uh, that's coming out this fall. But right now, the book that's out and has been out since uh, the beginning of this year is called Final Warning, Understanding the Trumpet Days of Revelation. That book went to number 60 on Amazon. In other words, out of 17 million books, it was the right. 60 top bestseller. It stayed in the top 100 bestsellers for days. It went into three printings after only two months. Amazon sold out and was out for four and a half weeks. That book's going all over the world. It's in the underground church in China. Pastors are using it, teaching it, and preaching from it. God is blessing it and using it, and it's waking people up to the times in which we live. That's why it's yeah, called amen. Final Warning. Yeah. And my next well, book, as I said, is called Be Thou Prepared, and it just equips the church for the difficult days in which we're living. Well, amen. I, I know somebody else that, that, that wrote a book, and he wrote a book like you did. It's kind of like Final Warning, but different, you know, stuff. But then he, that's what he, the next thing that he did was uh, write a book on how to be prepared. And that's where I see a lot of people are going now because, you know, if people are out there, there is a lot of information out there. And, I, and I'm not saying that we can't get new information about Bible prophecy, but you know, there's enough out there that we can wake the people up with it. But, you know, once you're woke up, you, you really need to know how to be prepared, um, don't you right. think? 
You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's right. I mean, because there's a lot of preparing to do, and preparing doesn't mean running off into the mountains and hiding behind a tree uh, with a white sheet on, waiting for the return of the Lord. No, we've been called to be the salt and the light. We've been called to engage. We've been raised up for such a time as this. Uh, don't don't take your light and bury it, uh, put it under a basket. Uh, we've got to shine it, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And maybe maybe these are the kind of books that we need to get to the church, you know what I'm saying? I, I you know and and I'm not down in a Christian church. I love the body of Messiah. It's just that I believe that they need to get fired up and woke up because there, you know there's still a lot of work to be done and we need more laborers in the field. Do you hear that, folks? You know, amen. Anyway, Carl, you got about a, a thirty seconds or so to give the your website again, and and it's been a blessing to have you on. Oh well, thank you. It's CarlGallus.com. dot com, and let me say to your audience: May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may He bless you and keep you always in the name of Yeshua. Thank you, Pastor Dan. Thanks so much. Be blessed, bud. Bye, bye, brother. Well, that was Pastor Carl Gallups. Um, He's always great to have on, and I caught him off guard uh, with one article, but he still was able to answer. The point is, we are in a time like this, and it doesn't matter. uh, There's loads, and that's what this program is about, is we review different people's books, because I don't believe everybody has 100% of the truth, but I do believe that there is a lot of truth out there, and so we present to you different books so that you can read them, that maybe that you'll grasp something out of them and just wake up. I think that when Messiah does return and the final things finally do happen, I think everybody just about on the planet is going to be completely surprised that, oh, well, that's the way it turned out. Well, let me tell you, we are in a time as this. I do believe that we're way further along than most people think. I honestly do. I have some people that tell me that, you know, uh, we'll learn it for another 20 or 30 years. No, it's within the time of Israel going back and becoming a country, and there's not a lot of that time left. Within that generation, that's when it's going to happen. But look around you. What kind of country do you want to live in? You want to live in a country where you have to worry about your children going to the bathroom and a man going into the same bathroom with your daughter? I mean, come on. Is that a country you want to live in? We're there. We're there. In some parts of the country, it's already that way. Plano, Texas. Uh, Men can use women's showers in Plano, Texas. Now, come on, folks. Um, That's what was told me today by Stan Johnson of the Prophecy Club. He told me that today when we were doing a radio program. These kind of things shouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen if the body of Messiah had used their voice and spoke up, but they didn't. Now, I don't know why they didn't. I I have my reasons, but it would just be my opinion. So I'm not going to give you my opinion. But I'm going to say we do need to speak up. We need to get saved because everything's coming quick in a great big rush. Pray about helping the poor. Just like that scripture I I read you in James chapter 2. You need to read all of James chapter 2. Really read the whole Bible, but read James chapter 2 and pray about it. Pray about supporting Wichita Mission Church. You really can use your help. And I pray because, you know what? When we found out that one of our strongest listening audiences is in Wichita, Kansas, and so you folks in Wichita, pray about supporting the Wichita Mission Church. And we must remember there is only one God. He is your father. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His son is Yeshua HaMashiach. He gave his life for repented sins. He rose after three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And through him, and only through him, is the way to the Father. 
Remember, always, always, always be a blessing to others. I mean, come on. How can you be saved if you're not a blessing? Lord our God, Father, King Universe, asking Yeshua HaMashiach's name that the Father blesses and keeps you, and his face shines upon you, and his grace is to you, and gives you peace. Until next Thursday, this is Pastor Dan saying goodbye and shalom. You've just heard the Messiah's Branch broadcast featuring Pastor Dan. To contact Dan on the Internet, go to messiahsbranch.org. To write to Dan, send a note to Messiah's Branch, 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Tune in next time for Messiah's Branch. Unemployment insurance running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com or simply call 316 316- 416-619-4886. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Job stress, financial obligations, or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom 
PSA count high? Half of all men over 50 have an enlarged prostate. You can shrink your prostate without harmful drugs or risky surgery. The secret to healing the prostate is to cleanse the prostate and the liver. Call Apothecary Herbs to ask about the Prostate Kit for a comprehensive way to heal and soothe your prostate. Educate yourself on how easy it can be to disinfect, cleanse, and restore your prostate glands. Call Apothecary Herbs for the Prostate Kit and successfully reduce swelling, inflammation, dissolve stones, and cleanse the blood to obtain the results you need. Money-back guarantee with every purchase. Call the experts in organ cleansing. Call Apothecary Herbs now for the Prostate Kit and empower yourself. Toll free, 866-229-3663 or international callers, 704-875-8010. That's toll free, 866-229-3663 or visit the web at thepowerherbs.com. One, two, 